You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. The Boss Hog of Liberty podcast is the latest hit on the We Are Libertarians network. Each week, Jeremiah Morrill and Dakota Davis explore life in Henry County, Indiana. It's a show about our circle of friends, public officials, and our experiences. 80% observation, life, humor, and 20% politics. Boss Hog of Liberty is the day-to-day happenings of Henry County, Indiana, which is just like your community. Add us on iTunes and sample us today. Dear Leader would want you to. Hey there, Liberty lovers. This is Mark Clare of the Lions of Liberty podcast, where we strive to bring you great conversations about the ideas of liberty three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Check us out at lionsofliberty.com. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow Podcast, striking the root every single episode. Hey, Liberty Rockers, this is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action-packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep liberty alive and rock and roll. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. We bring you all of the irreverence modern politics deserves while pe- putting people before political parties. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective with the goal of leaving you better informed. Uh, please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and subscribe on Patreon at WeAreLibertarians.com. In exchange for supporting our program, we give you all kinds of cool bonus content and free stuff. Please be warned that this show is raw, unedited, and authentic, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. And if there's anything in this that offends you, you may write editor at wearelibertarians.com. I read all those. I respond within a month, <laughs> typically. My voice may sound different. I have had a cold the last couple of days, and I felt my voice was okay enough to do a show. I didn't want to not talk to you guys for two weeks in a row. Uh, so I wanted to make sure to to have a show prepped, and we're going to. I won't be talking the whole time. I I found someone who can talk more than I can, and that's Reinhold. Reinhold, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, now you are here instead of Harry. I have not I uh, lost another co-host. Harry is just busy for the next couple weeks at his new job, getting some stuff taken care of. But you can hear Harry on Low Key Wall now on Friday nights. On Friday nights? Uh, yep, on uh, the Twitch channel. You can find out more by joining the Discord at wearelibertarians.com. So, yeah, as you can hear, my voice is a little strained. Uh, I, I got a cold. I was homesick from work yesterday, which I never do, but I was just that fucked up. But <laughs> So I decided to uh, to go to work today, pull up my big boy pants, and we're doing an episode now. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the Libertarian Party and why I think it sucks. Uh, I don't know that Reinhold shares that agreement, but uh, uh, what, what would you I, say? Do you think the Libertarian Party sucks? I think the Libertarian Party is great and sucks all at the same time. Yes. 
Uh, now, I have been a member of the Libertarian Party. I'm still a member of the Libertarian Party. I've worked for the Libertarian Party from 2008 to 2012. I was the executive director. It was my full-time job being the executive director of the State Libertarian Party in Indiana. Uh, and so I've dedicated a lot of my career and adult life to the Libertarian Party. I've been in it for 10 years. I think I'm going on my fourth or fifth national convention. So I bring some frame of reference, but I am not nearly as old as Reinhold, who has paid attention, yeah, to paid attention to the Libertarian Party for how long? I've been a member of the Libertarian Party since 1992. Okay. So, long time. Uh, and there's, I really, I, you know, I wanted to get into MS-13, and I wanted to get into some other issues that were going on, but they just, someone once asked Bill Buckley, how do you know what to write? And he said, it's what annoys me. That's what I write about. If it annoys me, I write about it. And so a lot of the issues going on, it's like, wow, I don't want to talk about this again. I do think the North Korea withdrawal is of note. And maybe we can talk about that some at the end. But uh, we're going to kind of wait for that to develop and talk about that on Tuesday. Uh, Reinhold will, I think, be back with me Tuesday? Yes. Okay. We'll be back Tuesday. Um, but I listened to the Lions of Liberty podcast, one of my fellow League of Liberty folks. Uh, Mark Clare does a great job, does a lot of good interviews over there uh, all across the libertarian movement. And he had a debate between the th- then three chairs of the Libertarian Party uh, chairmanship for LNC chair, Nick Sarwark, Joshua Smith, and Alicia Dern. Alicia right. Dern has yes- – since, yesterday? Since left the party. Okay. She left the party, which I didn't know when I emailed her back about a future episode that I was working right. on with her. She's like, well, I can't do this podcast for a few reasons. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I know you're busy. Meaning you're running for yeah. chair. Little did I know, she probably is reading that going, what an asshole. Um, <laughs> because I had no idea. Um, so why did she leave? Uh, she, I think, is just – I want the truth. I don't want – I heard that <laughs> sigh. I don't want any – it all comes back on me. Tell the truth. She's just frustrated and – you're not speaking for her. You're just upset. reading what you read on the right. internet. Right. What I've read is she's frustrated and upset with the direction that the party is going, not in necessarily the direction that the leadership of the party is going, but much more in just the membership of the party. She doesn't feel like the members are taking the proper things into account in the race. She doesn't think that she's, – she's just seeing the repeat of the 1983 event uh, – doesn't feel like she's she's put a lot of effort into this this party and it's not paying off because we're just kind of going backwards and repeating things over and over again. And the final straw, I guess, was when she went up to work with um, Laura Ebke's campaign, right? And she said there was there was money there. We were trying to get all this information out and get this knowledge out, and there were just weren't the people there, right, to help out. And she was frustrated there weren't the people there, but people will sit and spend all of their energy and time arguing about the stupid LNC race. Right. So I think it finally just got to her, and she was she's she doesn't think that the person who's kind of in the forefront of winning the race is qualified to run that position. Meaning Joshua Joshua Smith, Smith um, for a variety of reasons, um, and that's shared by a lot of other people, including you know his his opponents, and probably feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of that, and she felt that people weren't listening to the concerns that were being presented, the valid concerns that she felt were valid concerns about Joshua. Um, 
because nobody was paying attention or listening and just telling her that she was trying to defame somebody or run them to the ground and she was the evil witch basically doing this. Which pointing out somebody – pointing out concerns about someone who's running for a leadership position isn't defamation. I mean if, <clears throat> if you're making it up, that's mm-hmm. defamation. Right. That's a problem. I think a lot of people think that she's making it up. Right. Some of the, some of the concerns uh, – but one of the concerns that she has is that he doesn't have – she has no real experience doing anything like this. Right. That's a valid concern. There's nobody who can say that he has a lot of experience. They're just going to try and, def- def- and deflect it and say, well, Nick's just a car salesman, so what experience does he have? Well, he's been a lawyer. He's run businesses. He and was on the LNC he's for a LNC time. Yeah. for years. He was, he's yeah. been the chair for four. He's got experience. Yeah, it's four years. Um, so you didn't have to have listened to that debate at the Lions of Liberty, which you can find on any podcatcher. Uh, I've pulled a bunch of clips that we're going to play, which will hopefully help you not have to listen to my voice. And I kind of wanted to do this debate and and pull out pieces of it and annotate it for you, because I, I not this is the literally the first time I've heard about Alicia Dern or why she left or what's going on. We're sitting right here with you, listening to Reinhold, and I share a lot of the same concerns, not just about Joshua Smith, but. The body at large. Mm-hmm. I think there is a there is a large amount of groupthink that goes on in the Libertarian Party, mm-hmm. and and to a lesser extent in the Libertarian movement. But it definitely exists solely in the. It, it's very strong in the Libertarian Party. Well, uh, I think it's a lot of groupthink, a lot of factionalization, right. and a lot of new people to the party. Yeah, who or, don't have institutional right, memory. Right. Who I mean, a lot of the stuff that. We some of the people who have been here for a long time. We're trying to tell people is like we've had this fight before several yeah. times. Why are we having it again? Well, it's why I served. I, I'm no longer on on the central committee of the state of Indiana, but I served the last year on the central committee because I wanted to be institutional knowledge for my state. Because I went to a meeting in 2016, and I realized they were trying to figure out stuff that we had figured out in 2009, and. No one on the Ellen's. No one on the Central Committee was actually on the committee when I was there in 2009, except for one person who's not a very outspoken person. For you, you know the the cycle of people leaving the Libertarian Party. People join and leave the party within three to four years. That's like the volunteer cycle, because there's more people in the R's and D's. It's probably an eight to ten year cycle in the other parties. Uh, well, you get burnt out in the it, Libertarian it's Party. It's very difficult to be in the Libertarian Party, and the. And I think the people that remain over time have uh, – we have diluted it down to some of the more difficult people Yeah, the people, the people who stay are the people who are cantankerous mm-hmm. and you know, very self-righteous, white nighty as it were. Not, not white nighty in the SWJ term but just more right. of like this is my belief and I am going to stand for justice and fight this. And that's what you end up with, a lot of that going on right now. Yeah. So I joined in 2007. I was a Ron Paul conversion. I was, I was fairly libertarian-leaning, but I was in the Republican Party, and you know, I was a total Bushite in the war in Iraq. It was, I turned 18 on nine, like two days before 9-11. And so like I bought all that hook, line, and sinker, and I just remember like just being a good little fascist at, at that time. <laughs> I mean, I look back, and I just go... Some of the stuff that I fell for was, you know, I was young and in college and I did dumb things. Um, but now, you know, 15 years later, well, more than 15, I'm old. You look and you go, okay, I have a much sharper eye. 
and uh, I'm much more cynical. Uh, and you know, but I, I became a libertarian. I would say I identified with that word because of Ron Paul. You know, I heard my last piece of libertarianism that I didn't grasp was foreign policy, mm-hmm. and when Ron Paul talked about it in those debates, it made sense to me. And that's when I went, okay, I got it. Um, the The hilarious thing is that you were saying even in our own Discord, I was being called uh, – my uh, loyalty to the cause was being questioned because I was – because Smearing I had, Ron Paul. I was so. smearing Ron Paul, even in my own group. I like Ron Paul. <laughs> I love me some Ron Paul. I prefer Rand Paul at this point, which is funny because if you've listened over the course of this program uh, – <laughs> One of us has changed because I hated Rand Paul more than I – but I think it's because I've become more of a political realist. I've learned how things actually work, and I've, I've tried over the last – teaching politics, teaching on this program. You know, When you're doing a show, you're learning a ton. You know, My job is a professional reader, and then I translate that – what I've learned in the week since we last talked on this program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think in some ways I've I've – Gone deeper into the libertarian philosophy, but also deeper into understanding how things actually work in politics. And Rand, Ron Paul, Rand is much more of a pragmatic, small L libertarian than his dad. I would say that he is much more willing to play the game, to give up some things like mm-hmm. endorsing candidates that we'd hate, endorsing even like a Mike Pompeo, because he knows he has a bill in two or three months. That he right. wants people to back. So yeah. he horse trades a little if, more. If he gets the horse trade, then it's a success. If he doesn't succeed, then he's given up his principles. Mm-hmm. But that's – the other problem I have with Ron Paul or Rand Paul is he's much more um, theocrat than – I think he talks yeah. more of a theocratic yeah. game than Ron. There's, there's some comments and things he said in the past that were probably said more for the effect of who was in the room at the time. Right. But they still worry you. Worry me, so yeah. I think, but but I'm, but I wouldn't be opposed to him making a uh, if he if somebody makes an and this is my this is my opinion too about some other people that are they're upset that have gone to come over to the Libertarian Party recently. Um, but if you're willing to identify with that group and say I'm going to stand up for them and endorse them and be there for them, well, that didn't mute that. I'm sorry. <laughs> then, then. I'm, I'll, let's go. Let's yeah. let's do it. As long as you're as long as you're going to defend the the platform as it stands, and you're not going to be trying to change it until you understand it. I have no problem there. So, yeah. I think what I think if you gave Rand truth serum, he would say, "I'm trying to find a model, a framework to make for libertarian libertarianism to work in the 21st century in 2018." I don't think there's any chance of it happening through the Republican Party, though. I I. I Based on the the rest of this conversation, I don't know that it takes place in the Libertarian Party either. I, if I I I think, and I've I've told some people in the in the Republican, uh, the Libertarian Caucus in the Republican Party, this, the Liberty Caucus, that if they all would just get up and leave and come over to Libertarian Party, the Republican Party would be done. Sure, I agree with that. Because if we combined forces that way, it would work. Now, if we all went over to the Republican Party, nothing would happen because yeah. we wouldn't have any power. They do to they do to us what right. they did to Ron Paul delegates in two thousand eight, exactly. which really was the final straw for me. I mean, I was a reporter in two thousand and eight, and I attended all three 
uh, conventions. And I remember like women coming up to me, 375 Ron Paul delegates, I think was the number, <laughs> that got removed. They violated election law. They violated their own bylaws to get rid of 375 Ron Paul delegates here in Indiana because they didn't want them to go to the national. And they did it again in 2012. You know, so if you get close, they're just going to sweep the rug out from under well, you. Well, just like they did with Gary Johnson when he was close on the polls to get in the debates. The, there were four polling groups that came out with, with polls that they were going to be using to, to measure. Right. Two of those polls were manipulated in a way that there were no people in the poll under the age of 45. Right. Now, he was leading the polling for under 21-year-old you know, voters, for younger voters. He was winning them over. So by them taking out everybody under the age of 45 and not asking them who they want to be for president and using it as a, as a poll for who should be in the debates, that was despicable. Yeah. No, they, Ron Paul was never given a chance by the media or, mm-hmm. or anyone. Uh, and Rand just didn't seem to want to run for president. You know, when you're asked mm-hmm. to come meet the Koch brothers and you say, no, I can't. I'm on vacation. Oh, when you get – well, when <laughs> you make – He didn't go meet the fucking Koch brothers. We also you come out and say that you wouldn't have voted for the Civil Rights Act. Whether philosophically I can agree with the thinking behind saying that, mm-hmm. but politically it was not the smartest thing right. to do. I mean, but I, I think it's two generations, and I think Ron obviously was much closer to people like Rothbard, and I think he's much more anarchist, and I think he was able to say – in, in an era where there wasn't the internet. I mean, you hear about the newsletters all the time. I've read um, But I think Ron is much more anarchist and much more clear about, you know, anarchy, which I think speaks to the libertarian soul a little bit more than than the way that Rand presents things. Right. But, but he's also flipped his positions on certain things when he went back to the GOP, like immigration. Well, what what I have I, – I have nothing – I think my criticism on a post on our Facebook recently was that Ron Paul took the uh, quote-unquote disinviting of him from the National Convention, mm-hmm. and, well, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. He he used it as some sort of weird publicity stunt for himself. He He didn't investigate. He wasn't presenting the truth. He was presenting a twisted version of it to shove his mm-hmm. his thumb in the eye of the Libertarian Party – and that's one thing that I have never liked about Ron Paul. I've never liked that Ron Paul has encouraged his supporters to flip the bird at people who are trying to work for the same thing. That, that right. They want people to, to, to support them and the, you know, the libertarians to come support them. But right. They, it's the part of the, libertary, uh, the Liberty Caucus in the Republican Party. They say they will never be – the rule is that they cannot endorse a libertarian candidate. Yeah. I, I just it's never it's not reciprocal in any way, shape or form. I have never liked that Ron Paul has been hostile to a group of people who believe in the same ideology as him, but chooses to throw cold water on the political strategy that they have chosen, even though it's different than what he chose. I don't like that about him. And I think that as a thinking person, I am allowed to say there are some things about Ron Paul I don't like. And what I really hate are the people who try to turn Ron Paul into this cult figure. Mm-hmm. You know, it it has happened with so many for a people a, a group of people who are so free thinking. The the people inside the libertarian movement who make being libertarian their whole identity. You know, which it's a part of my identity. It's not my whole being. If you know, but there are some people who this is all they have, and by God, you better support it 
fully in the way that I think you ought to support it or I'm going to criticize you. You're not a real libertarian. You're not a real libertarian. I, I just – you know, there's no discussion of ideas. There are people on that post who didn't even watch the video. They're just outright saying, well, I watched the Ron Paul video and this is different than what he said, so you're wrong. No. I've had more conversations than Ron Paul with people on the convention committee mm-hmm. from both sides of the issue, from Michael Heiss – to Daniel Hayes. Daniel Hayes, to Sam Goldstein. Mm-hmm. I've investigated what actually happened. I know what happened. I have pieced it together. Ron mm-hmm. Paul didn't. Okay, I, On this particular thing, I know more than Ron Paul. Sure. And he's being irresponsible with his platform. And I, and I know, like, well, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't support Ron Paul. No. Criticizing one thing that he did or one mm-hmm. belief that he has does not mean that you don't agree with the other 99.9% of what the man says or thinks. I don't think there's anybody I can't find a a flaw with. We're all human beings. We all have flaws. There is this... There is this... I don't even know how you would term it. It it is... It's lionization is what I call it. Well, we're getting to a point in the libertarian movement and the libertarian party specifically where it isn't about experience. It isn't about accomplishments. It isn't about achievements. It's only about... Rhetoric. Do you say the right thing? It's all rhetoric. It's what all I've been about rhetoric. For, for the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to get people to hear is that people are just going for rhetoric now. They're not yeah. even not even having discussions and debates and saying, "Okay, we have these beliefs, but there are gray areas. There's fringes. There there are the edges of all of this that we can all talk about and, right. and disagree on and still come to an agreement that we want them mainly the same thing." There's so I've been investigating the the eighty three split so this is i mean this is a big a recurring thing for me i'm sure you've heard me going on about it many many times but i found a, the- a thesis that someone wrote for their college about the split in 19 19- in 1986 is when they wrote it mm-hmm. so it was very close to when it happened they did interviews with bergdahl and um and, and rothbard and all these people all the people were involved except they couldn't get he couldn't get crane but he comes to a really great conclusion at the end of it is where in the party, you have factions, and the factions that the and he identified the two factions as the um, the purists and the pragmatists. Mm-hmm. This is not new stuff, people. We've been going through this forever, and he says the problem he they had was is that in any situation like this, and even the socialists had run into it in their party was that. They agreed 95% of everything. They just agreed on a few things here and there on the edges, and they were fighting each other over it. Right. Instead of coming to a consensus and working together, they chose not to do that and chose to factionalize and have one beat the other one down. Right. And that's exactly what's happening again, and that's what's scaring a lot of people out of the party. And then when you have Steve Crabell creating the UIP, uh, the, the – um, I forget what they use for but the – the Unified Independence Party. An uninteresting idiotic party is really right. – let's go with that. He created that two months ago, and we're just all kind of looking at it going, okay. And then you look at their – it instead of being what the Libertarian Party is, which is a, a ground-up organization, think uh, Articles of Confederation, where the, the LNC chair and the, and the LNC itself isn't really that powerful. They can really do a whole lot. Uh, it's all what happens at the state party level. Right. They're doing a much more top-down thing, and they're doing a lot of uh, vagueness because they're trying to get a bunch of independents to work together who are all going to think differently about everything. Uh, But they're getting a lot of people to go over there because so many people are just tired of this stuff going on in the LP with the factionalization of it. 
And it started in 2000. Well, it's always been going on, but it really hit hard because of Gary Johnson, because everybody wanted someone else to be in there and he wasn't pure enough. And, and it's like, we're trying to win an election. If you guys would just stop on board, we could get this thing done and we can get somebody in here who's better than anybody else that's being up right. for offer right now. Yeah, going back to that split, I mean, Rothbard was instrumental in helping start the party. Uh, mm-hmm. The Koch brothers were instrumental in helping start the party. And uh, the Cato Institute was actually started for Murray Rothbard. They wanted to basically – the Koch brothers wanted to spread his ideas. And then eventually they hired on people like Ed Crane and they hired on more quote-unquote pragmatic people and Rothbard threw a fit. And then they basically stole his shares and kicked him out of the, the There's a lot more to that, too. If you listen to – I actually heard an Ed Crane interview, which is a very rare thing to find, where he discussed all that. Was and, he trying to pinch women on the butt while he was doing it? <laughs> no, he wasn't. But he said that, that basically Rothbard tried to get him fired. He went to, went to Coke and said, hey, you know, he's, we, we need to fire – he had someone else. Pro- he had some, basically the person in charge of uh, the Cato at the time trying to go to Coke and fire him. We knew they knew it was coming from Rothbard. Coke called up uh, Crane, said, "Hey, this is what's happening." Crane went in and fired that guy, and then they had a meeting and voted to take Rothbard's shares away. Right. It was all over some other magazine that they were starting, which I ironically was a magazine that was dedicated to try and reach out to progressives and socialists. Mm. That they wanted to close down, but Rothbard wanted to keep going. Yeah, I really detailed this at length in the episode that I talked about. It was where I interviewed Daniel Hayes, Mm -hmm. and then I I talked about the split. So there's like a good 40-minute explanation (laughs) of all this. So we're not going to totally rehash that. I'll just say go back and listen to that. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, But I I have hesitated to really kind of say what I've said since the beginning of this podcast and what I'll reiterate now on on the show. But I've really felt for about the last... I don't know, six months to a year. Like, I've been in the Libertarian Party for 10 years. I have seen no growth. In fact, all the growth that I worked hard for for four years was completely eroded because they didn't have someone to, to do what I did in the Libertarian Party of Indiana. I mean, the Libertarian Party of Indiana is one of the more well organized parties, and we still have seen very slow growth in the, in the four, five, six years that I've since I've left the party. You know, and I, I'm at my tenth convention this this past April, and I'm just going. It's a lot of the same people. It's the same size. Like this was a lot of energy for what? For great personal relationships. You know, that's been a beautiful part of it that I've get, been able to meet so many great people. I've gotten a lot of personal benefit and personal growth out of being a libertarian. Understanding what libertarianism means, how to apply it to not only your life but the world around you, you know, this, this podcast would not have grown out of that. This is one of the most important things in my life. Um, you know, I, I don't know what I would do without We Are Libertarians I, and, and the audience that comes with that. You guys are very, very important to me, and uh, the community that is around this is very important to not only me, but people like Harry and Reinhold and Chris Galt and, and, and the people and the Boss Hog crew, the, the people that are part of it. It really means if you hear our voice on, voice on a microphone, every one of those people is appreciative of the people that listen out there. Uh, and so I don't ever want to demotivate somebody from taking a path and working towards liberty in that path. Now, I have uh, always wanted to be in talk radio. I've worked in talk radio and journalism and media my whole life. That's what I enjoy doing. That's what I'm good at. 
So that's how I have used I've, – I've taken those gifts and I've tried to, to grow liber- the libertarian movement that way. But there are people who want to do political organizing. That's what I thought I wanted to do. I just didn't want to do it. But I, I haven't wanted to really say like – is the Libertarian Party a total waste of time on the airwaves? Because I don't want any of you who are listening, who are thinking of getting involved or are involved, to think that you're wasting your time. You know, but I do feel at a certain point like we've got to have a conversation about what what all of this actually means. What are we really doing this for? Mm-hmm. You know, is is the whole point of the Libertarian Party to just attack each other and try and test each other's purity based on their rhetoric and hold people to these? You know. Like you can't – I've just given up posting on our Facebook page because it drives me nuts because whatever notion the person who is commenting has of what libertarianism means is how they judge your post. There's no I want to understand where you're coming from. Uh, I'm going to just blast you based on – it's just like whatever person – I want the name, Reinhold, of the person who questioned me on Ron Paul in our own group because there will be an inquisition. It wasn't it – was, it was the line – I think Alliance of Liberty. Group. Well, those bastards. Uh, no, I, I can't remember if it was like I said. I can't remember if it was League or if it was Lions. It, 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 it doesn't matter. Like that. Any anybody who listens to me knows that my goal is like o- over the over the break. You know, I went to Las Vegas for my brother's wedding, and then I had I had just like a nice break there, and then you know uh, uh, an extended break, and I've just done a ton of reading, and I've done a, a ton of reading of and about H. L. Mencken. Mm-hmm. who was a writer in the beginning of the 21st century, really, uh, in the audio interview I heard, he called himself a libertarian, although a lot of his views, um, <laughs> I don't think the modern libertarian movement would consider it, them It was the other libertarians. Yeah. So the ones who say they claim the word first, but it, it's a but I hear, point of contention. But I hear, like, some people. I read the stuff that he's talking about, and you're like... That's the same shit we're doing and talking about today. Like nothing has changed. All of this must be meaningless. Like, but it's the same stuff that I heard from Thomas Jefferson, right? And James Madison, right. and they change things. I mean, so I don't think it can be done. It's just maintaining it. Maybe is the problem, right? Well, I think that's what Jefferson meant when he said, you know, you have to refresh the tree of liberty with the blood of tyrants. I mean, you have to every generation define what liberty means for you. But you look at you look at the early twentieth twentieth century progressives. You know, Anthony Comstock was the postal inspector, and he basically banned entire pieces of uh, mail through the United States Postal Service, saying that it was it was unfit for distribution. Like that's pretty tyrannical. You know, like. A lot of what happened with uh, the prohibitionists and the the groups who were trying to um, the Rotarians and the Methodists, as he called them, the Boomers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these were people who were trying to fix society, mm-hmm. and they were trying to outlaw speech. I mean, Mencken was actually arrested for selling his magazine in 1926 mm-hmm. because there was some obscene speech. Well, which, and, it's, and it's going all in other parts of the country, the world. It's bad right but my point is that it's very much like the college campuses of today mm-hmm. you know it like everybody's very worried about the college campuses and the sjw's and it's like we lived through it before y'all just aren't reading well, your history they're kids they'll you know they'll get into the real world and they'll right. be like everybody else and go wait this isn't like it was and they'll they'll you know pitch a fit and they'll you know thrash about and it'll finally dawn on them that 
that's not maybe the way real life works. Yeah. Um, like, I, I just don't, um, maybe some other libertarian podcasters or libertarian speakers or writers, maybe they just want you to follow what they say as the word on high. Like, mm-hmm. I, that's not what I'm trying to do here. What I'm really trying to do here is I'm learning and I'm trying to spin off the byproduct of what I'm learning uh, with you to make you think so you can learn too. And that should be the whole goal is trying to – when you when – you when you're reading these things and you're looking at these posts and you're reading what people write as a libertarian, you shouldn't be reading them to go, okay, where is he getting it wrong at so I can blast him. Exactly. It should be, <laughs> what's he saying and am I wrong? Right. Let me let me think about my own thoughts here. Maybe I haven't thought about this enough. From a different point of view, is this match with me or match with that? And then come to a conclusion. Now, if you come to the conclusion that the guy's wrong, that's fine. Yeah. But don't go into it thinking that, well, he must be wrong, so therefore I want to find out where it. That doesn't. You don't learn anything that you don't grow as a person or as a libertarian that way. I just get frustrated because I put so much time and effort into everything that I say, and then the people who have the snap judgments of you're wrong, you don't know what you're talking about. It's like, well, you're not offering. Like, I, I have 15 years of experience in this. Like, I'm I'm a fairly studious uh, person. Like, wh- why? Just because you think a certain way because. Mm-hmm. Your friends think a certain way. I think a lot of what, what's going on in the libertarian movement is social proof because other people talk about a certain person, then that person is popular, and we're not judging what those people are saying. Uh, we're, we're not really thinking for ourselves. Or if they talk negatively about somebody, that person's bad. And that's even bigger. Yeah, and know? that was the big thing that got me yesterday was so Alicia left the party, and there were people cheering. Right. I'm like, you just lost one of your best advocates for this party for a long time, right? She's done a lot of work. You may not agree with what she said or some of the things she's done, but she put in the time and the work, and she made a difference, and you're applauding and happy about it. And it's just like – Well, I think Adam Adam Kokesh and Bill Weller are two examples, and I think if you go and listen, I, I offered a full – you know, explanation of why you should and should not trust Bill Weld mm-hmm. and why you should and should not trust Adam Kokesh. And then you make up your mind. You know, I think there's mm-hmm. there's big problems with Bill Weld. There's even bigger problems with Adam Kokesh. You know, they're not to the two of them are not necessarily somebody that I want representing. I, th- I think everybody's us. hoping for somebody else. Right. And, <laughs> you know, and I, I think it, so let's jump into these these clips on the chairs race, because. I think it's really exemplified in this because what what you hear a lot, like Nick Starwark is a polarizing person, and I get it because I've known Nick. I met Nick first in 2010, I believe. Uh, Nick was never a part of any faction. Like Nick was always a very independent-minded person. Uh, and and going into this convention, it's really odd to see all the caucuses pop up because that's new. That's not something I remember from past. And it's not a thing I'm a fan of at all. Yeah, like it's all of a sudden everybody has to be in a caucus, and there's no one allowed to be independent. You you have to be in the pragmatic caucus, or you have to be in the Mises caucus, the or the audacious. radical caucus, you know, or the audacious caucus, or whatever. And and like that's just more tribal bullshit that I don't think the Libertarian Party or the it was supposed to needs. be what we were against. Yeah, and I let, don't know how that happened. Let me say I don't <laughs> believe that the Libertarian movement makes up the entirety of the Libertarian Party. I think the Libertarian Party. And the para organizations around it make up a, a fairly small amount of the libertarian movement. Uh, I think if you're a person who is driving your car right now, you're listening to us talk, and you are a, a libertarian voter, 
and you listen to libertarian podcasts and you're a libertarian but you don't you're not involved you don't know another libertarian in in your life you're part of the libertarian movement yeah. okay you may not be part of the party but you you know um so so Nick uh Nick got my ire up when uh, he he nominated Noda and cost my good friend Mark Rutherford the chairmanship in uh I think it was St. Louis in 2010 and Mark basically lost by one or two votes mm-hmm. but uh that was Nick being independent and Nick mm-hmm. saying I'm not a fan of this chair or this chair uh the guy who the guys that ran and ultimately won uh Mark Hinkle he was he was kind of a let me just say it. Joshua Smith reminds me of pretty much every chair candidate that I've seen over the last four or five conventions. Mm-hmm. He's somebody who says all of the right things, but he's not exactly expressing a lot of leadership qualities. Okay. I met him here in Indiana. He seems like a perfectly nice guy. I have no reason to doubt that he's not. There are a lot of people that I've seen endorse him that I respect. You know, so maybe there's more to him than I I know, but based on this particular performance on the Lions of Liberty debate, he reminds me a lot of the people like Jeff Neal, Mark Hinkle, the the Lee Wrights of the world, the people who say the right things but aren't necessarily good managers. You know, mm-hmm. Nick I think has had some tremendous problems in the last four years as chair. Uh, I think his lack of leadership on Arvin has been troubling. I fully understand, like not wanting to get involved and say anything because he's a duly elected member of the LNC and it's not your place to override the membership. But he's he's a real problem. He's a real cancer. And if you're not going to take a leadership role in that, then there's and I have an issue with that. But and I and I talked to Nick about that the you, day he was say? supposed to make his point, and he pointed out the the note of speech and how he felt that it was really the delegates who should be deciding this stuff. And he also pointed out that if he had voted to um, remove Arvin the day he did, Arvin would still be in the party because there right. was a, a appeal process that he has to go through. It wouldn't have got rid of him. And then what do you do? You, now you have Arvin who knows he's getting kicked out. It, he's going to go full bore. He's going to be a worse cancer than he was all the way leading up to the convention where he's going to be getting kicked out anyway. And leave it to the, the delegates to decide that because let's pretend, let's pretend that um, Joshua gets in and gets voted in. They, all these people who voted for Joshua who thinks he's great and have, have really rallied behind him. And then he does something a little silly a year into the, the role and people clamor for him to be voted out. And the chair votes him out. What are those people going to say who still think that he should be the chair and they voted for him? They're going to feel disenfranchised. So well, he's trying not to create. He's he's trying to stop the factions from built growing and being worse. And I think, I think maybe in this case he probably should. You know, it, it's a hard call in my opinion. If you don't say anything, but then yeah. people agree. Think you agree with him. Yeah. Um. And and I'm sure that he remembers the Angela Keaton stuff from 2008. Angela Keaton worked for antiwar.com, and I think she still does. And I don't know what happened. I was new to the party. It was all a big drama where she was basically removed from the LNC. And I just remember how toxic that made the next two LNCs. And so maybe Nick's calculation is like, I remember the Angela Keaton stuff from 2008. Like, if you're more interested in that, you're just going to have to Google it because I just don't care enough to look it up right now. And it it does cause, um, I mean, because we think it's an easy call. mm -hmm. But we're not the only people talking about this in the party, too. There are people in the party who are cheering Arvin on. 
Oh, absolutely. Who are his supporters, and they're, and they're going to feel like they just got their voice right. shut down. Right. I mean, that's part of the problem. That's part of the issue that Michael has is he feels that the voice of the people he's representing with the Mises caucus are, are getting Heiss. shut down. Yeah. Michael Heiss. Yeah. Heiss. I say he's, didn't I? Either way. I, I do that sometimes. So the, um, but he, he represents a, a certain group of people, right? Who he feels are getting, uh, squashed. Their voice is getting squashed. So that's why he's trying to do what he's doing with, with his movement, uh, to get a, to get a voice. So it, he, he, I think, there was just a concern that that was going to happen with other people and other groups. And we're just going to create this more fractionalization. Yeah. And it's a big concern. And it's something that actually Nick and Alicia and Matt and I talked about in a, a conversation a couple of days ago when Alicia left was that split of 83 and not wanting to repeat this. Yeah. And I mean, and like, seeing all the signs. So Arvin, I mean, even Arvin has been a benefit in a lot of ways to the party and how he has, the the party had no social media presence mm-hmm. until Arvin was elected vice chair and took that over. Mm-hmm. Like he really built that from scratch. Yeah, I was doing some research too, and some of the things he had done early on when he after he got uh, elected, he was doing I thought some good work, and it was just. But it's like I I don't understand what what happened triggered. along the way where triggered it's <laughs> it's just like you, you you were doing a good job, and that's where where Nick I think you know the the office is the best run in the 10 years I've been here. I mean, there's been some points in the last 10 years where, like, just close the thing down because the, these people are worthless. Mm-hmm. And ironically, most of those same people still work there. Uh, but they have different they've, – they've been reorganized and had new people hired on, and so they're more effective. Yeah, Nick, and Nick has always seemed to me to be a great person at wrangling the cats in the different factions together. Because mm-hmm. one thing, he's not tied to any faction. He's not tied to any yeah. caucus. He's independent. He's proven this over and over again. And I saw it in the 2016 convention. Now, I wasn't there, but I watched it on TV. Right. And I watched this thing run like clockwork all the way through, with the exception of somebody deciding to take the clothes off on stage. <laughs> but other than that, it ran like clockwork, right up to the point where Nick had to step off the stage in order for uh, his election to go through. Right. And then within five minutes, that thing had devolved and was a mess. And Nick had to go back up on stage, which was technically against the the rules, and tell everybody to sit down and get back to the business. Yeah. Um, so let's let's start kind of going through this. Uh, let, let's hear their own words. Um, you know, I think... Uh, we'll just kind of annotate this as we go along. Let's start with Joshua Smith. Um, now let's start with Nick on chair experience. I think this was the first clip. I should have I should have done a better job of labeling what was one and two, but we'll just kind of go in whatever order. So here's Nick Sarwark on the Lions of Liberty podcast. So the the role of national chair in the Libertarian Party um, is a little different than it is in the other two national political parties. We are not as top-down or centrally controlled as the Republicans or the Democrats are. Uh, We have bylaws that very specifically elevate the state and local parties above the National Committee um, that prohibit the National Committee from interfering with how states run their business. Uh, It's more like the Articles of Confederation than, say, a strong central government. And recognizing the limitations of that role is one of the key things to being a successful national chair. 
there, I've, I've watched over the last nearly 20 years I've been involved in the party, many national chairs try to, to set out their vision for what should happen and make that happen by kind of force of will. It doesn't usually go well. What happens is libertarians being a just naturally contrarian and fractious bunch, they cut you off at the knees and the bylaws are built by the delegates at convention to cut that off at the knees. So I think the key to be national chair is recognizing the limitations of the position and recognizing that a lot of what we talk about in government with libertarianism, where you have to persuade instead of being able to, you know, impose laws on people is the same thing that, that happens internally. You have to get consensus from groups of people that oftentimes disagree on a lot of stuff in order to move the ball down the field for this overall um, goal that we have of a world set free in our lifetime. So that's kind of my vision for what the national chair should be. I had the advantage of seeing a lot of people do it uh, not as effectively. And so that's kind of what I bring to the table there. So that was the beginning talking about why they should be chair. And Nick was 100% right. And I wanted to play this because I wanted to make a point. I wanted to reiterate the point that he makes. There are so many armchair quarterbacks who think that the Libertarian Party should do this and then they'll win. The Libertarian Party should do that and then they'll win. It's just not that easy. And that's also why you really shouldn't put that much stock in the National Libertarian Party or even your local Libertarian Party. Like, there's, there's a group of people that have to be convinced and then there are votes that have to happen. Uh, and I feel like we treat our political parties like we treat our government. Well, I just believe that the government ought to do this. Well, do you understand how the, the American system works? It's supposed yeah. to be very slow. I was talking with, with somebody about um, marijuana, for instance. You know, It's easy to rush those laws through and get those things passed, but it's much harder to kind of roll that stuff back. Because you know, she, she was asking me, like, why, how did MS-13 get created? Well, MS-13 grew out of the need for Hispanic gangs in the California and southwestern jail systems to fight white gangs and black gangs. And then they get deported back to their country in Guatemala, <clears throat> excuse me, and then they become the ruling power in those countries. So more people flee Guatemala mm -hmm. and El Salvador and move here, mm -hmm. and then we have an immigration MS, problem. Fleeing MS-13 who then come here, and then they have to be and, fearful of them and there. And all the while, MS-13 is fueled by the drug laws that we have created. Mm -hmm. Well, marijuana is legal. Yeah, marijuana is legal, but legal that is doesn't – not legal. Let's Nowhere. say – Let's say weed is legal. Let's say you fully decriminalize. It doesn't It doesn't mean that all those people are going to get out yeah. of jail because a lot of the people who went to jail initially for weed offenses also have other crimes stacked on top of them because that one first offense really ruined the rest of their life. It's a very complicated thing, and so you have to be very slow about how you make laws because it's even slower to bring those things back. Right. You know, And it's the same within political parties. There's a lot of these factions that have to be – massaged and worked and there's conversations that need to take place on a board that happens it's not just a matter of you know what i think the libertarian party ought to do is they ought to just pick two state races and one county race and just fund all their money into that it's just not that easy it's not well, that simple did are you taking the clip out where, he, where joshua talks about the uh roy moore case yes okay yes i'll, I'll get to that then because it folds into that in in my idea of political acumen and stuff so I'll get into that more, but this, the Senate, like the U.S. Senate, is designed to be the blocker 
not the house. The house is supposed to be able to just come in there and just do all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. The house is supposed to be more thoughtful and representing the interests of the states, not necessarily the people in the states. The cooler to the people's right. passions. And people are just like, why is the Senate not acting? They're not supposed to. That's the design of it. Yeah. Well, and that's part of why the Senate was originally appointed by the legislature. And not it, voted on. And yeah. not voted on. It was the progressives in the early 20th century that ruined that. I'd love um, to see that come back. So let's go to uh, – yeah, me too. Let's go on to um, Joshua on his opening statement. Uh, let me see. Why is this Joshua on my chair? Sorry. It wasn't in here. Here we go. So this is Joshua Smith. He is the contender on why he should be chair. Um. I believe personally and and from traveling around the country and talking with our delegates and our, our activists and our party leaders um, that the chair should be there to find innovative ways and hardworking ways to make a base for our candidates, create a more successful base for the candidates, for our state and local leaders. <clears throat> I think that that should be the most important focus of the chair and more broadly the LNC. Um, I think that what I bring to the table is a new vision for the party, um, a new direction, uh, more focus on things that are um, going to help in modern politics, such as, you know, technology and new candidate support. I think I think it's really good that, you know, Nick and, and the LNC brought in two candidate support specialists and, and started a candidate support um, committee. I think it's really good, but I think we should have 10 of them. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I really have laid out a plan um, for the party, and it's all based on what I've heard from you know, our delegates and our members and our activists around the country, you know, tomorrow or tonight I leave for Ohio and it will be my 16th state in the last 18 weeks. You know, I, I've shaken the hands of, of the people who matter the most to this party and that's our activists. And all the vision that I've laid out, the things that I want to accomplish, the blueprint that I've given to people, that all comes from the delegates. That all comes from the people that I've spoken with face to face. And so I think that makes me best prepared to lead our party to a more successful future. All right, and uh, before we move on to pride questions, did, did anybody hear anything in, in those those answers that they'd like to respond to? I mean, I know Nick and, and Joshua, you can That is the very handsome Mark Clare, host of Lions of Liberty, uh, and I felt the follow-up question was important. I, I will stop. Let's stop there. I will say, to Joshua's point, I didn't disagree with a lot of what he said, but I do think that it kind of shows some of his inexperience. He he's not he's not crafting a vision for the party out of his his twenty years, like Nar- Sarwark said. He's talk to a bunch of people, and this is what the consensus of what people think. I think Sarwark does the same thing. I mean, I, I talked to one uh, employee who works for the National Party, mm-hmm. and they said, Nick watches everything. Mm-hmm. Nick sees I, everything, and the way that he like starts talking to you about getting the job is that he'll start asking you questions because mm-hmm. he's followed you for a while. You know, um, So I, I think that he's out there getting consensus too, mm-hmm. but I, I just, you know, like the comment about 10 support specialists. That was the one that got me, too. So was, we, I, we brought in Sue. That was good, but we need 10. Why not 20? Why not 50? Well, how do you, there's limitations. There's probably a financial have. reason yeah. on why there aren't 10. You're actually hiring somebody. That's an ongoing salary that you're going to be keeping that you're going to 
promising somebody you're going to pay them, you don't want to just pull that rug out from under if you can't make the bills, if right. you can't make that payment that month. So those are decisions that have to be made. And some of those don't get made by the chair. Right. That's the other thing, too, is that there's a lot of promises getting made that aren't the job of the chair. They're the executive director, which nobody's talking about. Nobody, I think a lot of people don't even know the executive director exists. Yeah, I, I think most people put too much importance on the chair when in reality the chair leads the meetings and they manage the staff and then they – Talk to the media when there's the mm-hmm. chance. Right. But in terms of guiding the party and like this is an all-powerful well, authoritarian figure, that's just not how it works. There was another debate in with these three people in uh, at the um, convention in, in L.A., in, in California. And Nick started off his speech with, I want to thank you for voting me to the least important position in the Libertarian Party. Yeah. And he detailed that out and to the point where the other two, Leisha and Joshua, kind of took up that saying. But it was it was him basically saying this is the least important. It's it's you people doing it. It's the state people doing this stuff. It's the activists. It's the volunteers. It's the people bringing in money, uh, all the staff, everybody else. So much more important than what he does because he just leads meetings. Yeah. You know, and that sort of it, those minor things. It's everybody's putting this emphasis like. This is the person who leads the party and makes all the decisions, and it's not how it works. And they're going to be – I think there's going to be some disappointment. Well, that's always the disappointment yeah. is that the populist libertarian mm-hmm. elects the alternative choice in a Jeff Neal. And Jeff Neal was a much better chair the second time around than the first time around. But uh, By then he'd probably had some experience. <laughs> right. But, you know, well, why didn't all this change overnight? Why are we still having these same fights? Because it's not – it's it's like it's I, I guess what I want to get to a point across to everyone is like you can be a populist leaning libertarian who just I have these feelings and this is how it should be. It's like, but you really kind of need to figure out what the reality is and figure out how to change it within that framework because what a lot of times what we think when we're new has already been tried fifty years ago. And there's All a right. reason why right. it's not being done. Yeah, and so it, it's like I, I agree. Like I think the can, <laughs> candidate su- support specialist is a great thing. Like I had Kara Schultz on, mm-hmm. and uh, she seems to be doing a really good job just based on talking to some people and watching her performance uh, and talking to her directly. Um, but, you know, it's it's the first time we've ever had someone supporting candidates. Like the party was all about ballot access for many, many, many years. Well, most of the candidates in state – candidates and and others didn't really want the party involved there's a hard separation between yeah. those very very hard separation yeah. people are like well what happened with the gary gary johnson campaign why did it fail which i don't think it failed but that's that was the question that was asked and he's like well we don't really have any control over that campaign there's nothing we can really do no i he he was able to speak to you know what he saw and what he believed was problems but it, it failed because of people's unrealistic expectations mm-hmm. Because they never wanted to learn what realistic expectations right. – and, and to the party leadership's discrediting, they don't want to be realistic with people and say 3% is phenomenal right? Okay, because we always is. get one. Oh, and, I'm sorry. But in, in, that, in that debate – and we're not talking about that one. But, but in that debate, Joshua says, I think 5% was too much. We should have shot for 20. <laughs> How – how? How is that realistic in in this? Now, I think we could have gotten twenty. I think there was a there was a point where it could have happened. if he had gotten into the debates. If he wasn't if Johnson wasn't kicked out of the debates. The fact he was popular among the younger people, and a lot of people weren't choosing him because they didn't see him as a viable candidate. You get into that bait with fifteen percent, 
and they're at 25-30. You take 5% from each of the other two. You've leveled that playing field. Now, all the people come out of the woodwork who wanted to vote for somebody else but didn't think they could, they have a candidate. That could have flipped with that debate so fast. Yeah. So people are just like, oh, it was such a failure. It was such a failure. No, it was because they were told this guy wasn't a viable candidate. So everybody went back to their norms of voting against the person they didn't want to win. At least, And the leading voices of that, he's not a viable candidate, came from the libertarian movement. That was the biggest problem that really frustrated (laughs) me. Because their own unrealistic expectations. When something happens to the Republican or the Democrat and they have a, a mistake or a gaffe or something like that, their party people are out there defending him. Ours were attacking. Yeah. Right, and this is why we shouldn't do this. But and it's it so much just pile on and and eat the dog politics that the, the other parties didn't have to do anything. Yeah, they don't have to attack us. We attack our own selves. Yeah, I think like the candidate support positions are a new part of of uh, as well as Andy Burns and the state party support position. Um, you know, for years under Bill Redpath and and those Ellen, like Jim Lark and and some of those guys. It was really focused on ballot access. The main function and the only function, really, of the entire national party was to get ballot access. It has for been states. for twenty years yeah. because that's what we needed. We needed fifty-state ballot access to be taken seriously by the media and by a lot of people, a lot of voters. You needed that, and we've now gotten it. So now we've got this money that we don't have to spend anymore, right? And people are like, "Why didn't you do this before?" It's like we didn't have it because we were fighting this goal. Now we have with. The success that Gary Johnson has, we have 36 states already in the bag. We don't have to go and and pay money to fight for it anymore. Now we got money we could do stuff with and, and really help achieve and go forward. And to me, it's like we're just going to do the same things that happened in 83, tear down the party again, and we're going to be back to where we were fighting for ballot access in the next four years. The uh, the Like the ballot access argument, it was also states like Indiana where we have ballot access. If you hit 2%. In the Secretary of State's race, you get ballot access. Mm-hmm. We've got Mark Rutherford running this year, most qualified libertarian candidate for any office in the decade that I've been involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be amazed if he didn't hit ten percent, which would He's make polling at ten percent, which right would now. make the LP a major party here in, in the state. Mm-hmm. But the message back to the national has been in the decade I've been around: you don't do anything for us. You just mm-hmm. take our money and send it to Oklahoma on these Pyrrhic victories yeah. where you got ballot access, but then there's no organization there to feed. So, like, mm-hmm. why should we give you our money when you don't do anything for us? So then, you know, okay, we got a candidate recruitment specialist. We've got a state party specialist. We're actually doing the date. We're actually fixing the database. Like, mm-hmm. there are databases now. This for the first time in my like, I was talking to one candidate recently. And I said, "Where where's all this information coming from that you're making mm-hmm. phone calls to to people?" I, know I said, "Are you are you like are you calling this?" Like, no, it came from the the LP, came from the Johnson campaign. I said, "What? Like they're that organized?" Like I was amazed. Like mm-hmm. so, there's actually a database of contacts for candidates to call for the first time. Like that's a huge advancement, mm-hmm. but nobody talks about that. They they and I'm I do this too. Like it's. They, they want to talk about the Arvin stuff, which is important. You know, Arvin is... Is it really? Okay. <laughs> I, I, I see. I, I agree with you. It's important to us. But I think that... Do like, a Google, nurse, a Google News search on the word Arvin and see if anybody in the media cares. <laughs> right. Well, well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But that's... So the, the job of the chair really is 
very it, it's nudging leadership it's certainly not like uh it's it's wrangling cats and trying to get yeah. them to go in the same direction yeah. that's the type of leadership and it really is. depends on what it's kind not, of illness you got it's not elected. to pick up the flag come with me we're going to storm right. the hill leadership that's not it all right, so on this follow-up question. Kind of have different visions there. I mean, do you have any thoughts about Nick's, uh, what Nick said about you know imposing your vision upon the party and how that, that usually doesn't work out? Do you, do you think that that is, you know, that you having such a grand vision of what you want to see doesn't, you know, quite necessarily jive with the role of, of the chair as facilitator as, as sort of Nick and Alicia both seem to see it? I, I think that, you know, this, this vision didn't come from me. This, you know, this isn't just what I want to see. This is what I've heard, you know, our, our hardest working uh, party members want to see. And these are, you know, these are the things that I've been listening to for the last four months uh, from our membership. And, and so that's not from me. And I, I will fight to make sure that those things happen. I think they're really important. And, and I think that it's going to help facilitate a more successful party for our members. So yeah, I want to see those things happen. And I'm going to fight to make sure they get done. But, um, that doesn't come from me, <laughs> you know. That all came from them. All right, so we. Uh, so I, I guess I don't understand that because does that mean that the the pretty diverse LNC that we have now, all the way from Star Child, who is very esoteric, let's put it that way, uh, and to uh, Carolyn Harlos, I think is on it. Karen Ann. Karen Ann Harlos. I apologize. Um, you know, there there is a very diverse LNC, and they seem to be working pretty well. All the way, Sam Goldstein, who I worked for. He's a very fair man, but he's very pragmatic, libertarian, hardcore. Uh, you won't I, join our Discord. <laughs> I just don't. I just don't think that anything that if you you detailed and and polled the LNC currently, like, do you disagree with anything in this blueprint? They'd all say, "Yeah, we'd love to do that, but we're restrained in resources because of X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Like, we just don't have enough volunteers for this, or we don't have enough money for this." And so I think sometimes newcomers they have they fall into this trap of thinking that the existing leadership isn't doing their job because the thing that I think is important isn't being done. Well, the thing that isn't being done is probably not being done because of a lack of resources. A lack of resources or it was tried in a failure or if there's you know, there's a lot of different things that could be going on. You need to find out what those are, not just start ranting and screeching on Facebook. And, And so so I just I, I also take an, a, an issue with this idea that th- there's a democratic strain within the Libertarian Party and somewhat in the Libertarian movement, but more in the LP, where because it's popular, it's right. I'm sorry, I don't buy that. I'm not a, I'm a, I'm not a Democrat. Okay, I'm I'm a I'm a person who doesn't believe that the majority mob rules, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't understand people who believe that. Yeah. yeah, it's it's because. You know, the majority of people on Facebook agree that this one thing should be done. It doesn't mean that they know anything about what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think libertarians and people well, listening and those tuning in for the first time need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and go, do I really know what I'm talking about? <laughs> well, and whenever I call, call into question something with a member of the, the Mises caucus, a lot of time it's, I get back with, well, we've got, 800 people, you know, 1,600 people. Maybe right. all the, they give me the numbers of the size of their organization. I'm like, you, you created a nice little echo chamber. That's great. But that doesn't mean you're right. Yeah. Right? 
Let's let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. Let's debate it. Don't just tell me, well, this is the way we've decided it's going to be, and this is the way it should be, and you're wrong. Well, I will I will say this. I had a long talk with Michael Heiss yesterday because this Ron Paul canard started popping up on Facebook again, mm. and uh, I called him out on one status, or he called me out, and then uh, said, oh, you never even tried to talk to me, to which, in a Michael Heiss fashion, I posted the screenshots where I had had a conversation with him. So we ended up talking for like an hour um, and having a really good conversation, I think I think the Mises caucus is really important because I I think the the whole Rothbard Koch brothers fight and the feud that exists in the baby boomer generation that kind of carried into the Gen X generation. It's like that needs to stop with the millennials as we move. Like there isn't any reason that there should be any fighting amongst any libertarian faction. It just shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be, but it's getting stronger. Uh, I know, but. I, I'm not going to argue for it. I mean, I'm, I'm. So I think people need to, when we get to New Orleans, give the Mises Caucus a chance mm-hmm. and let them speak and listen to what they have to say. Mm-hmm. And I think likewise they need to listen. And I think that's what a lot of this is. It's like I, I'm. We're, we're all putting our wish list out instead of actually saying like. Well, what here, here's, it should why be, is it what can way? we agree upon to move forward with? Right. Let's let's agree to disagree on a few issues. That don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but let's let's agree that we need. But the problem you're going to have is that there are people who are dead set on the next candidate. That our candidate should be pure libertarian, right? Whatever are they in my club? Means. Are they are they right. true believers? And or not, not the Bill Welds and the Gary Johnsons who are just watering down the message for everybody. And we talked about it earlier. I don't know if it was captured or not, but we talked about how. You, you that message can reach ten percent of the people. It's not going to reach the rest of them. I mean, there's there's different messaging that has to happen. And I was very very surprised that when I said this to, today, um, Michael liked it and responded to it, saying he yeah. agreed with it. And I was like, this isn't the same Michael I've been having conversations with the last no, three I, months. Like I said, I think the uh, in talking to him yesterday, I think he realizes. It's it's almost like he's he started this with a, with with an anger and he's put this together and he's worked so hard with a big focus and now he, he feels like he's getting to the finish line. It's starting to realize okay what's the next steps what's gonna what do I need to do I need to come good with what I'm saying. I, and I said something the other day I said if you guys win, right, you've got two years to put up or shut up, right. And you better not you better not just be going in saying, Okay, we want this to win and think it's gonna work. You've got to really be aware Trump, Trump, Trump. <laughs> You've got to be Sorry. aware of what you're really doing here and make good on it. Or they won't give you a chance again for a long while. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to do it in a way that like just treat people decently. There's a lot of people still in this party. You don't want to lose. There's people going to the UIP. We've seen this happen. It's it's a it's a concern. Uh, I, I've seen. Listen, I've, I've seen this. Seen it like with all it's, other, you know. uh, there was a party started that Angela Angela Keaton people left and went to that party, and it just it's you know this happens all the time. These people leave. They go to this other party. They flame out in six months. They take a couple of years off, and then they come back. Yeah. Like I've seen it three cycles now at this mm-hmm. point. Of this kind of thing, where people get frustrated and mad and leave the party, they go somewhere else, and then they come back because yeah. this is where they belong ideologically. Um, but you know, and I just wish people would kind of shut the drama off a little bit and just say, you know what, I'm just going to take a step. Like I posted a status about Michael, and mm-hmm. I was pissed when I posted it, and it was in, I was 
And so after talking to him for like five minutes, I go, hey, I deleted that post. I want you to know. I posted it. I was pissed. I was wrong. I apologize. He said, I do it too. I, I appreciate that. You know. And I think there's – like it's not that we're not going to do things like that. It's not that we're not going to have those disagreements and they're going to be kind of ugly. But the second you realize you're being ugly, take a step back and just go – I'm gonna have to eat some humble pie here. Like I'm, I'm being, I'm being the willing asshole, to, to you accept know? the fact that you are a human being and you, yeah. you, you let emotions get to you. We all do it. Yeah. So then they talked about messaging, uh, and messaging is a really big topic because of Arvin. Arvin keeps posting. Uh, Arvin is the vice chair, and Arvin keeps posting things like, uh, you know, I'd rather, you know kill school board teacher i don't even know what he's talking he's saying some crazy crazy stuff that's really inflammatory and he's clearly doing it just to be inflammatory so messaging has become a pretty hot topic in this uh campaign so we'll start with nick uh nick on messaging so here we go how would you change the messaging of the libertarian party to entice those newer to our philosophy to join while still providing a quote-unquote pure message and i guess i would add to that if you even feel that it is a a role that the chairman should be involved with now let me take issue with the question i'm going to take issue with a couple of these questions um the the idea that there's a really weird thing that is going on in the libertarian movement and the libertarian party specifically where it it is it, it's almost like in the in the christian church uh, i guess the best way to relate it is that people don't feel that they are witnesses for christ or that they can go out and evangelize it's the pastor's job to do it you know Ooh. it's we've hired this guy to be an evangelist so he should do it I don't need to do it because I'm just a regular person. That's why I'm paying my dues and I'm voting <laughs> right. this person in. Why do I need to do his job Right. For? So uh, I elect the chairman to be the messenger of libertarianism. Like, I don't believe that. I believe that you listening, every individual, you are responsible. If you have a belief system that you believe will work, to talk with others about that belief system. Part of what I do is to give you information to help you spread that message to make you think about how you talk about politics uh, and also to have a little fun while we're doing it. But, you know, so I, I just like if if the Libertarian Party messaging is off, Libertarians take that so much more personally than like Republicans are, are taking it with Trump, for instance. Mm -hmm. Like they're dismayed at the way that Donald Trump, but like the press, our friends, normies, they all have like this disconnect where they go, okay, well, that's Trump, but it's not all Republicans. You know, opportunistic Democrats try to put that on all Republicans, but those are idiots, and we all recognize that. But there's some weird thing where if one libertarian has said something, every libertarian on earth in all of history is responsible mm -hmm. for that one individual. And it just seems so counterintuitive. And I think we kind of. We've been so gaslighted with that concept that we have started to, to adopt that concept. And I, th I think you, you can say, I don't agree with this person. Here's why I disagree with Arvin. Here's why I disagree with Nick. I've had, mm -hmm. I mean, Nick flat out, Nick and I don't talk anymore. And it's because I called him out on the Tom Wood stuff. Because well, I, and we'll talk about that later. But, was, I think it was his response with the well, Greg thing that. Yeah, but yeah. he, <laughs> yeah, but we'll, we'll get to it. But he was being a dick, and that's mm -hmm. what I really took issue with. Right. Um, but he was being a dick because he felt someone who had been friendly was no longer being friendly. But he was wrong. And it doesn't mean that I don't think Nick has been a good chairman in some respects mm -hmm. and a bad chairman in other respects. He's it's been a human it, chairman. It, it's, it's whatever. It, it's everybody's good and bad. Even Arvin, <laughs> yeah. really bad and 
okay. You know, <laughs> like that's the Overton window there. But well, you the know? thing about Arvin too is that he posts this little thing that almost nobody sees. That's really inflammatory, and then 150 libertarians share it out so that now thousands and thousands of people have seen yeah. it. Wouldn't you keep doing that if you had that kind of It's the Streisand juice? effect. Yeah, the Streisand effect where someone took a photo of Streisand's house, 50 people saw it. She sued the guy for privacy reasons, and millions have seen her house now when she yeah. didn't want anybody to see her house. If she just left it alone, 50 people would have seen it uh, because it was just some beach-line property. Yeah, and people no, would have just knew. seen that and went, oh, it just – Deleted or blocked Arvin or whatever, yeah. and left it to be nobody would even care. Right, I don't because I I have a platform and I have a duty in my mind to yeah. tell m- the Libertarian Party people that follow me like this is what your chair's up to. But uh, you know, and I think everybody has that right. It, it's up to you, but I do think Streisand effect kind of uh, affects that. But I, I would just say like focus on how you give out the libertarian message and what you believe right. and how you spread that message it, and it, less about how other people do it it's just like with christianity they say that if you don't want to be a, if you don't want to be a preacher and evangelize just live the life yeah and let people see that and come and ask you the questions it's the same thing with libertarianism just live it and be and and ask answer the questions when asked have the conversations when they come up be the best person you can be as a as an ambassador for libertarianism I mean, because it's not everybody feels strong enough to go out and have those conversations. My mind was changed on gun control because I just saw responsible gun owners. Yeah. I, it, my mind wasn't changed on gun control because a former co-founder of Liberty Hangout marched across Kent State with a gun on her arm. That didn't convert me to, <laughs> to, to believe in gun rights. Like, that's just inflammatory dumbassery. Like, she's lucky she didn't ki- get killed, especially at Kent State of all places. Like that's attention-seeking behavior that does nobody any good. Like it's I'm sorry, but Liberty Hangout is just ridiculous. And uh, you were telling me they were they're trying to be more libertarian, and nobody's falling for it. I guess they've gotten rid of a bunch of writers, got new writers on, and now they've written an article about how uh, Nazism is nothing to do with libertarianism, and here's why. And the remaining readers that are there that were pulled in by their message before now going hey wait a minute what are you talking about right. this is all bull and and fighting them back and the, the comments are hilarious um it's just a a mess yeah <laughs> so so i really think like you have to take a step back and go very few people like this is an inside this will be a very small downloaded episode because people don't give a shit like they don't care about the inside baseball that's why i try not to do a lot of inside baseball drama? shows i want to see the right which we'll get me. We'll get on to another with a, the message I was talking about earlier. So we'll get to that. So that's my problem with the messaging question is in in implied in that question is other people are to do the outreach. I'm not the one doing the outreach. Don't just leave it up to me. You know, like I think you know as much as Roger Paxton and I argue, like Roger is a great example of somebody who listened to the show and said I can do this in a different way and better and with a more with a message that I agree with more, and he's built a great podcast network out of that. You know, like take responsibility for spreading the libertarian message for yourself. Like the the two things that I found when I was the executive director and training candidates, they had two insecurities. One, they were worried that they would embarrass other libertarians, and two, they were worried they didn't know enough about the libertarian ideology to uh, spread the message. Well, first of all, who cares about embarrassing other libertarians? Nobody's more embarrassing than libertarians themselves. Like, like, who cares what other people think? Just do. 
Okay, and along the way, you will grow by the activity that you put out. And second, like I am ten years into this, and I'm still learning something about libertarianism and how it applies to politics and libertarian philosophy every single day. Like you start at a certain point and you keep moving a certain direction. You know, I am always wrestling with different questions. How does this apply? You know, and that's why I think like axioms, like I said on the Legal Liberty podcast for subscribers, for Patreon subscribers, like that's why the the non-aggression principle is important. You have to have those those rock solid axioms that don't move because the world is full of entropy. We're all trying to break apart and move in different directions, and things are always changing. And so you've got to have those those uh, moral compasses in in place. But when you look at how politics and people work in 2018 and an anarchist society, like how, how do you get those two to talk to each other? There's a lot to flesh out there, and there's a lot of issues that we there's work human through. In this. nature that I think right. gets lost a lot in the because we talk right. about a philosophy that's going to work, we believe is going to work, but we also have to understand that there's human nature that sometimes isn't as straightforward and, and logical, right? There's a lot of emotion there. The fear, the things like, like there was a lot of concern in, you know, about whether people should be able to, you know, say they shouldn't serve other people. But what happens if you have an event where there's a lot of fear happens, like nine eleven, where they say, okay, we're not going to serve anybody Muslims because because it's it's not rational thought. It's very emotionally driven, and now you're you're really affecting a lot of people who. When you sit down and think about it three months later, you'd go, oh, I should have done that. Yeah. But now you've created issues. And now how do we, how do we in, in a libertarian society deal with that? And a lot of people aren't thinking about those things. Yeah. They just think that it's just going to logically work. Well, pe- people aren't logical. Yeah. I, I, so my point is just if you feel like you want to talk about a subject or you, you disagree, it. just talk about it. And, and by embarrassing yourself – you will you will learn stuff like I, I, I've you know don't compare yourself to somebody like myself or like a Roger Paxton or a Tom Woods, you know th- these people who have studied and read and uh, do it for a living. In, in like Tom Woods's case, like you, you can't compare your depth of knowledge to somebody who has worked in politics for fifteen years. You know, like I started somewhere and I started on Abdul's show. And I go back and listen to those tapes from 2007, and they're embarrassing how little I know. My first libertarian writing was in alt-politics news groups <laughs> in, in the early 90s. Right, not I, go, I go back been, and read them, and I can, you, you can go search them. Not everybody's as old as <laughs> Reinhold. you got to start and somewhere. You can read those, and, and I'm just, I read them and go, what the heck was I saying? Right. Because it, it was just craziness. So, and it, you're, you're never crossing the finish line. Never. And if you think you've crossed the finish line, you've stopped growing and you're stagnating and you're you need to look at yourself because yeah. you're not there yet. Nobody is ever all the way. The, there. the thing that make that made me gr- turn into a libertarian in the first place was saying things to Abdul and Abdul going, you're an idiot. <laughs> and me going, I might be an idiot, not you're an idiot. I know what I'm talking about. It was I might be an idiot. I wake up every day going, God, I wish I knew more. Uh, so I, I just would just start. Like, don't worry about it. But you are a messenger of libertarianism. You are as important as Nick Sarwark or Joshua Smith. But let's go to their question on how they would fix messaging. So the delegates at convention are the ones who define what the message of the Libertarian Party is. They adopt the platform, and that platform is the, the lodestar for what 
the Libertarian Party stands for. Uh, it's very different from other political parties in this country. Our platform actually means something, and we have candidates who stand up for it. The change in messaging that can happen from the national office, you can't change what it means to be a libertarian, right? Like, you can't say, hey, a bunch of people want to build a wall, and so we're going to go out and talk about restricting immigration when the platform says people should be able to move freely without government interference. What you can do is you can try and relate that platform back to things that are topical in the media, things that are topical in the country. You can adjust based on who's in power in either the presidency or in Congress. But as far as changing the party's message to attract different or new people, that's assuming that that's actually the chair's role, that the chair gets to decide what a new member looks like. And that I don't think is appropriate for a chair to do, to decide these people with these particular views are the most important people to recruit. I think that it's up to the delegates and convention to decide what they want the platform to say, what things are important enough to be enshrined in the platform. Um, and so that's kind of the answer to that. So, so you would say overall that that that's that idea of messaging and attracting certain types of people is basically outside the role of the chairmanship? It is uh, a Outside of, you know, obviously part of growing the party is recruiting people. And so you need to identify messages that resonate with certain target audiences and who are good prospects and who are bad prospects. But that's a data driven process, right? We run direct mail. We run online advertising. We do various things to prospect members. And so we have data that says, you know, this group of people is good and they tend to join at a higher rate than this other group of people. But no, I don't think that the the national office should be deciding how to shape the party or who, who should be part of the party or who we're going to try and bring in and who we're going to try and make feel unwelcome. Mike is off. How unprofessional. But yeah, all right, I can buy. I can get on board with that. Let's give Joshua his chance. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think Nick's kind of missing the point of the question here. Um, for me, I'm kind of having flashbacks to a conversation that Nick and I had once where Nick uh, indicated that um, a growing membership is not in – what was it? It's not indicative of – uh, success for the party. And I believe that that's heavily false. Um, I believe there's 60% of, of the population currently is not voting in this country. And um, those are the people that want a third party. Those are the people who are not happy with the two old parties. And, and you know, the messaging from national has been inconsistent to say the least. Let me just say, I don't think that national penetrates to any of our friends and family at all. And I think if you really sit and think about, like, do any of your friends and family know who Nick Sarwark is? Like, so I think that's very much a red herring because I think, I think that is libertarian party people living in their own echo chamber thinking that the party is bigger than it really is. Well, and the other thing, too, is that a part, the party is put together and working to elect people to office. It's not there to do outreach of libertarianism. That's an educational think tank, podcasts, blogs. We have tons of those who can be out there doing this stuff 
let's have that one organization that actually works to try and get people elected. A national overarching organization mm. like a libertarian party. Like the politics of a candidate in California will be different than the politics of an Indiana candidate. And there's, that's- there's a candidate running in Seattle. And he's like not saying libertarian very much, but he's mm-hmm. saying things that he thinks will resonate with the people in Seattle. So that messaging that he's giving is going to be much different than somebody in Indiana. Yeah. So, so I kind of disagree with that. That you know, th- that the chair really has any effect. Like Nick was on Reason and some talk shows during the mm-hmm. 2016, 2016 campaign, but I, I think that if I were on a TV show. Every uh, every every week, let's say mm-hmm. around a different cable news show once a week for a period of three months. I don't know that our subscriber base would grow that much because in the in the reality of TV advertising, that's a very limited amount of exposure. Mm-hmm. Like if you wanted to buy a series of radio ads or TV ads, you need to buy full saturation for it to really work. Yeah. And so even those TV hits are not enough. And I think that we sometimes within our own little echo chamber lose sight of how little impact the party actually has. And and the only time that you're really going to get impact is in a campaign season, and it's from a candidate. It's not from a chair. It's not from a yeah, county chair, party chair. The chair's there to back up the right. messaging, to reinforce what's going on. It's not to lead that messaging. In, in my mind, a, a chair at all levels is there to build an organization so when a candidate steps into it, then they are ready. They have the backup and support, and they yeah. have the, the infrastructures in place to handle it like with the databases and things like that. A lot of people think go in thinking that's already been done, Yeah, and they get in there and find out, well, well, I don't have, where's this information? How am I supposed to do this? Right. So, so I do think we need to take a step back and realize, like, do my friends and family know who Nick Sarwark is? You can take an informal poll. I guarantee your coworkers don't know. And they don't care what he's saying. They don't care what Arvin's saying. I, like, I had family who I've talked to about libertarianism for, uh, you know, off and on, just randomly for a while. But they don't know anything about it, but they voted for Gary Johnson. Right. They're, those people come up to you and they go, who you got running for governor? Those are the pe- that's what they're mm-hmm. interested in. They don't care about the the chair or what their messaging yeah. of the national party is. And I think that Nick was right in that it needs to be fairly broad and set by the membership because if it's set by the membership it is going to be broad. It has so to be you broad. can be open to a wide swath of people. There mm-hmm. you know like there are people who think that that come from the right want a more conservative platform. There are people who come from the left who want a more liberal platform. It's like Platform ultimately is meaningless. There, you know, maybe a, a voter will go and read what a platform is about, but really they don't care. They want to know what the candidate. Well, is true, saying. but also the, is the candidate in the party? Isn't there an agreement that the, the candidate has to basically stand by that platform? And I, I'm sure there is. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm sure there Karen is. Ann was talking about it once, but I, I mean. Whatever. She was very upset about. You know, we have the upper echelon of leadership. One of them is trying to inflame people as much as possible, push people away from the party. One of them puts out memes, you know, applauding a student walkout uh, to take away our gun rights. You know, we have to find a consistent, principled message. It doesn't have to be a centrist message, but we can't constantly try to pander to the old parties. We can't be inflammatory and push people away from our causes because we're trying to build a base. We're trying to get more membership. And there's a lot of people out there that are staring at us right now. So I think if we can just find a really consistent message, 
you know, that, that stays true to our platform, stays true to our principles, but doesn't pander and doesn't inflame, I think we'll, we'll really see a big growth that we're not used to. Like, but do you think that Nick wants Arvin to like? Do you think that Nick is? I I would guess Nick has probably texted Arvin a couple of times, been like, "Bruh, what are you doing?" No, he said it in, in when he decided not to uh, vote to oust him. He also said that I won't be nominating him again. And our our um, strategies are divergent. We do not agree. So anymore. he basically does in Nick way disowned him. Basically, but, well, let's say what? Yeah, which is indirect, <laughs> which is inefficient and in and uh effective but i would say in joshua like if you really like think about what joshua is saying there we need consistent messaging so he's going to tell people what to say how to say it mm-hmm. like i can tell you that's not going to go over well with libertarians like what how are you going so i think that if you see joshua or during the debate season or at the convention like how are you going to achieve this is where i think mark probably should have asked a follow-up question like how would you achieve that yeah. Um, nothing against Mark because it's really hard to do this stuff and like think about what's going on and, and ask these questions. But mm-hmm. I would just say to Joshua, like, how do you plan to achieve that? Because we're libertarians. Get two libertarians in a room. There's four opinions. Like, it, it's very difficult for you to get an a large overarching organization to march to the same beat, especially when it's full of libertarians. So, like, what's the goal there? I would have liked to have heard. Him kind of flesh that out a little bit more, and maybe he will. And then there's that kind of rhetoric of pandering. Like if we do something to to send a message to people who are uh, of one side or the other of the political spectrum, and say, "Hey, you know, you've got the right problem. You just you don't have the right solution, and we have a right solution for you. And here's why." That's considered pandering, right? I mean, it's not considered pandering. It's trying to convince those people that they're in the wrong party. They need to be over in our party they just have a little thing stuck in their head that's preventing that you know? right a lot of people are democrats because they just cannot stand republicans and that's the only thing that place they think they can go to they don't like the progressives they don't like that messaging but it's better than the alternative if we could show that there's some place that actually fits what their thoughts are you know because 60 percent of the people are really libertarian if you go look at it uh, they just if you don't name it that and would be much more at home in our party than the other two, but they don't know that. Right. So, all right. So there's a little more to this. Let's hear what it is. Nick, just since you were mentioned there, do you want to respond to anything Joshua said? Yeah. I don't recall ever saying that. I don't think it's a good idea for the party to be growing. Uh, I may have said, and I do believe that a membership metric is not a good metric for a political party. You know, I'm sitting here looking at results out in Nebraska and it doesn't count libertarian party members. It counts votes for one of our elected officials. So votes and voter registration are the metric that matter for a political party and money. Uh, The membership model, the idea that this is some sort of club is one of the things that I think has served its purpose and it's time to grow up past. But I I don't think I've ever seen. Oops. Uh, I cut that off a little too early, but I I tend to agree with Nick. Um, and this is, this is a debate that's kind of gone on under the radar. Are we a party that measures by membership or are we a party that measures by dollars like the other two? Uh, And I think that's something you're going to hear a lot. Uh, I think there's, there's arguments on both sides. So let's hear like Nick and, and Josh kind of go back and forth on this. I just wanted to drop a little saying here because I still have a really big problem with what Nick said about membership not being a driving indicator of success. Would you not say that those members are the ones who become activists for us? Um, you know, we're 
we have this goal of running 2000 candidates across the country and we barely have enough volunteers for 500 candidates. Um, people outside of the membership of this party don't typically become hardcore activists for this party. You know, they don't typically go and run for office as libertarians. It's almost always people who are members of this party. So I believe very heavily that membership is a driving indicator of success for us. And it's going to be what helps our activists and our party grow. And do you want to respond to that, Nick? Yeah. Um, so I understand Joshua has a different view of this, uh, and it may be from a lack of experience. Having run a full slate of candidates in Colorado and currently running a race in Phoenix and helped candidates run, elections and candidates running for office drive membership. Membership does not drive elections. We do not get our activists from pursuing members. We get our activists from having them be active on campaigns. And had Mr. Smith continued with his state house campaign, he would have a ton more volunteers who would have gotten involved because they would have been inspired by his message, and he would have had a shot to win there. And uh, I'll let you respond to that, Josh, since you were also mentioned there as well. Well, I mean, I've I've inspired I've inspired hundreds of people around the nation currently with my chair can- candidacy and got them involved, but uh, they they weren't touching the party prior to this, due mostly to messaging. So uh, that's all I need to say. Yeah. So I guess jo- did Joshua drop out of a race to run for chair? Um, he dropped out of a race. I don't know if it was to run for chair. Okay. All right. Um, I think they're both right. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not fence sitting here. I think that there is some validity to what they both said. I think Joshua in this debate made a very, uh, cogent point that the goal of 2000 candidates is way too much and, and way more than the party can handle. That in and of itself is the problem that needs to be fixed. Uh, you need to build a core of volunteers. So how do you build volunteers? You do need, well, you do need data and data is gotten in the libertarian movement by membership currently. Well, and, and having a goal isn't necessarily a bad thing. I don't think anybody says if we only do 1500, we've failed in our mission. Right. So I think that we just need to make sure that, I think the party needs to make sure that they are, not overtaxing the the people that they have, which they right. currently are. Um, but I don't think that just having that go out there is, is an indicator that they are going to do that. I think that there's an idea of we need to watch it and make sure that we hit that reasonably, not just do that. But the the other thought was what Nick said was most activists come not from membership, right? I mean, most people become membership members because they want to become those activists. So they're already charged up. They're already fired. How many people, when you were um, running LPIN, did you meet that was signing up to be a member so they could run in the campaign? They had already decided they want to run, but in order right. to do so, they had to become a member. So, okay, here's my fee. I'll become a member. Uh, that was probably about 25% of people yeah. every cycle. So, I mean, I that say. happens. You get, you get yeah. people who are coming both ways. You get people – what I get concerned about is that well, we've got people who aren't members of the party because of the messaging. I mean, I just a lot of times I think that's just an excuse that people have. I, I agree, and I've said this on the show a lot. I think that when your Republican aunt says, "Well, I'm not joining the party because of that James Weeks danced naked on stage," you were never joining the Libertarian Party, anyways. Exactly. Fuck off, get out of here, Aunt Donna. Mm-hmm. Like, I just I, I don't buy that. I think that's an excuse that people use because they don't want to do any work. They know that being a Libertarian is going to be harder. They don't want to be judged by their friends. They don't want to be. They want to be in a club know. that's winning. Exactly. They want to either stay with the Republican Party for that. Right. Know. It's very tribalist. They don't want to put the hard work in. Uh, so, so. And the other, the other question was, you know, measurements of success. How many people have you talked to where they say, well, 
Libertarian Party is not successful, and these are people outside the party. So I'm not going to vote for a Libertarian until you get somebody in the national office, get elected to national office. Right. So until then, you're not a serious party. Why should I even give you a, a look? Right. And then you got pe- then you got people who are saying we shouldn't be running any national office. We should be focusing on local and building a base. Like, we've been doing that for 35, 40 years. Good old Debo. Deb Olson's back. Deb every podcast <laughs> writes and uh, Agenda Twenty One Thirty NWO is murder. <laughs> Uh, shout out to Deb. Um, yeah, I so and maybe because we're focusing on membership as a metric, that it is uh, creating a culture where membership is more encouraged than running for office. Uh, but I, I tend to think that the membership model, it, it, millennials especially, are not joiners. Well, do you think everybody working on Larry Sharp's campaign in New York are all members of the party? I'm. I bet your mind's expired. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I, I bet. You're right. No, in Larry Sharp's race specifically, yeah. I bet you fifty percent are members. Yeah, and membership is about giving twenty five bucks. Like people are like, I'm giving my time. I don't want to give you money. Yeah. So I, I just there are think people it's, who are just not going to give money to National for reasons, you know, because they don't right. want to support National because they're doing horrible stuff. It's like. The membership metric only comes out every chair's race to bludgeon a chair because the membership is dropping. And that's because people are poorer and people and millennials are not joiners. And it has nothing to do necessarily with the effectiveness of a chair. Sometimes it does. Um, but I tend to think that the metric for success should be the same as the voting public, which is how many elections did you win? Right. Well, I loved how they were using the number of memberships dropping when that. Nick Sarwak, Tom Woods thing happened, yeah, which was probably going to be coming up soon. But they were saying, well, you could tell that everybody's leaving the party because look at the membership numbers dropping. Well, membership is a year-long membership. So the numbers were rolling off because it was the end of the selection cycle the year before. And the timing was that they were going to be dropping off because they were members for the election and now they're not anymore. Right. If something like were to happen, you're not going to go the next month to go, look at all the membership drops and account that because you pay your 25, it's for a year. Right. So that wouldn't even – that's the lagging indicator. Uh, so let's get into some of the candidate recruitment and the candidate stuff in Alabama. Uh, uh, this is, this is uh, a question. I just pulled the question, I think, uh, and this is something that I I take exception to this question. John Odermatt has a question. Beautiful John Odermatt, who I love. Uh, I think asks kind of a silly question. Um, he wants to know, which is the best method to growing the party uh, when it comes to candidates? Is it better to run 2,000 or so decent candidates or to run 200 highly qualified candidates who are you know, either great communicators or successful businessmen or what have you, and to really ar- rally around those candidates themselves? Is there one strategy or the other of those two that you see as being better? All right, so here's my issue with that question is – that and this is a common question. It's creating a binary out of something that the party can't control. Mm-hmm. If you are, I have been responsible for recruiting candidates, and at one point I recruited 120 candidates in 2010, and then in 2012 I recruited like 25 candidates because in 2010 our goal was to run a bunch of people, anybody, put them on the ballot because we want to get more names on the ballot. To raise, including Dennis here, <laughs> right. uh, we want to get names on the ballot because we want to raise our votes for the Secretary of State's race. Mm-hmm. And what what I found during that race is that the eighty percent of them who were paper candidates were embarrassing to the party because they didn't have headshots, they didn't have a website, they didn't have an email, they didn't have a bio, they didn't have 
questionnaires filled out and returned to news outlets. And, you know, and the final straw for me was when I opened up the alternative weekly called Nuvo here in Indianapolis, and they had put JCPenney models in for every one of our candidates in their voter guide and said not one libertarian candidate turned in a headshot, so they're not to be taken seriously, so we're going to just make up answers for them. How embarrassing is that to an alternative, you know, younger crowd that could have been we could we missed an opportunity there. <coughs> so, uh, we we installed a candidate vetting system in 2012 that we reinstalled and and it now exists here in Indiana, where you you have to have two people who are in elected leadership on the central committee in uh, the officer corps or a local party have to sign off on some paperwork where they've filled out some basic information. We've explained the expectations for our candidates. Like you have insert your bio, insert your headshot, give us your contact info. What can we put on our website? Uh, a basic questionnaire of beliefs. Uh, have you been uh, convicted of a crime? <clears throat> Which in 2012, one guy lied about it, got arrested, and we were able to take him off the ballot. Because he had lied about his crimes, and like, like we didn't care that they were drug crimes. We cared that he lied about it. Like, right. that's the problem. Um, and so, so the candidate vetting form has been really helpful because you get back stuff, and you're like, oh, this dude's super for immigration. Like, this guy's clearly a crazy person, and we wouldn't have known known this had we not had, you know, people filling this out. And then you put these in a little booklet. People at the convention are able to scroll through them in the state party Facebook page. You post them, and they can read through those documents. Uh, and the office is well organized with those candidates. And what you got – because if people aren't going to fill out the form, then they're not going to be a good candidate. That was another thing because the second I would send that and say, if you want to run, you've got to fill this out and turn this in by this date. Oh, I don't want to do that. I just want to put my name on the ballot. No thanks. See you later. Bye. Especially when you could just fill out the form and then put your name on about it. You didn't have, right. It wasn't saying you had to do anything at the. Oh, night. I don't want to do thirty minutes of work. No thanks. You know. <laughs> so, so I think it. I think it is important to run quality candidates. But when you're talking about, do you want to run 120 paper candidates versus 25 good candidates? Well, you want to run 125 good candidates. Yeah. But you you can kind of twist people's arm to be a ballot a paper candidate like in 2010. But it's really hard to get good quality people to run for office. You're kind of at the mercy of who shows up. You know, in the Libertarian Party, it's not like in the Republican to Democratic Party where you're going out and like convincing a local businessman to run for mayor and he's gonna be a he, he could be elected mayor and he could have some power. It's like you don't you don't do that. You're we're true believers in the LP. So like you're really kind of hoping that true believers step out of the woods and go, I'll run for office uh, or convincing existing people who are, are like Dennis I want to run a race. Well, are you willing to commit to this? Yes. Would you be willing to do these three things? Yes. You know, like by kind of upping the quality of the candidate by making your expectations clear. But again, it's only if Dennis is willing to do it. So it's it's a question that gets talked a lot about, but it doesn't really have experience behind the question because you really can't you really can't just like wish 2000 candidates into existence like that's why i have a whole i have a problem with that that whole concept you know it's hard to recruit candidates for the libertarian party it just is yeah there's a lot of empty spots and um 
at the Indiana convention when I was looking, I noticed there yeah. was just a lot of empties, and it's just like, well, it'd be great if we had. Uh, and I know Nick has said this before. He wants to give every single person who has a ballot to vote for an option to vote for a libertarian. It's a huge, it's a huge it's a, thing because but, when people go to the and they see a local libertarian candidate, they go. Oh wow! There's liberty. That's the biggest advertising mm-hmm. that the LP can do, and people don't realize that is that when there is a Libertarian Party candidate on their local ballot, not for president, but like for town council or for Congress, they go, "There's a party here," and then they call you the next day. Yeah, I'm sorry, but, my voice is going out. <laughs> but no, that's that was one. Of, I mean, it's a very lofty goal. It's a, it's a, but it, I think it's more. It's not like he's he's saying I want that for for this year. Right, but I think he's saying we want to get to that point where we can have that happen. And I don't think anybody wants two thousand paper candidates. Right. You know, I I think what they want is two thousand candidates, and they want to try and drum up enough people who are quality to come up and fill those positions. But that's got to be something really done at a state level by state level. It's just not a national thing, the national chair thing, right? So that's just another another one of those issues where is this the function of a national chair? to be interjecting itself into what the, who the states are putting out for their candidates. All right, so uh, this is their answers, and then they get into the Alabama special election. This is a little longer clip, so excuse me. You don't have to hear my voice. All right, Joshua, and uh, what is your opinion on this, This, uh, I guess, focusing on a few races versus sending a lot of candidates out there sort of a debate that goes on? It's a great question. I, I, still, I believe that the 2,000 candidates goal was a very, very noble goal. I do believe it was far too big for us. Uh, seeing as we barely have enough support to help with 200 candidates across the country. Um, I think that our current candidate support specialists are overworked, uh, completely overworked. And, and, uh, I've had conversations with a couple, one of them. Um, and, and you can, you can visibly see the, you know, the tiredness from being overworked. Uh, I, I, as chair, I don't think we're going to stop people from running, and I think we should encourage people to run as much as as much as we possibly can. But I do think that we need solid candidates who are going to go out and put the Libertarian Party on the map. You know, I think we're we're working with like around twenty thousand members of the, the National Party right now. Um, we've got like eight hundred candidates running across the country. Um, you know, we we could talk about some of these special elections. You know, Alicia Dern. Uh, brings up a good point, you know, if some kind of sex scandal happens, you know, especially like the Ron Bishop campaign down in Alabama, where there was a, a sex scandal with Roy Moore, um, you know, we had a writing candidate down there running that I believe could have got us ballot access. Um, and, and he, you know, there was a record number of write-in votes and, uh, the state turned blue for the first time ever with Doug Jones. And, um, I don't know that we put any resources into that. We, you know, we did a, we did a meme and a reminder to vote email. And, and I think, you know, we can do better for some of these good candidates like that. You know, he had to be a writing candidate because they don't have ballot access there. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's an ambitious goal. It's a little too ambitious for the party to run 2000 candidates. I really think that, you know, people are overworked and tired and, and we need to focus on um, candidates that are going to win and, and get them into office and really start to affect public policy. All right, uh, Nick or Alicia, do you have any response to you know, anything Joshua said? Only with regard to Ron Bishop. Uh, as a write-in candidate, he would not be able to get us any kind of ballot access um, if he had done well. And again, that's the thing strategically about these special elections that a lot of people who are not involved in politics regularly don't understand is, you know, this is basic Sun Tzu art of war stuff. If you fight on ground that your enemy chooses for you, you will guarantee a loss. The uh, the amount of Republican and Democratic money in that election for Roy Moore's seat was or um, 
the session seat, the special election for it, was so ridiculous that there was never a chance that a libertarian candidate could break through. And part of being a chair is being a good steward of party resources and not burning out your activists and your donors by deciding that you're going to make heroic efforts in losing causes because that does not lead to long-term success. Would it have been a, her- a heroic cause for, you know, you and maybe one other person to go into Alabama and, and call, you know, call a press conference or let the people of Alabama know that there, there was another choice. They didn't have to vote for Roy Moore or Doug Jones. I mean, is that something that, that you could have done? Is that a serious question? Yeah. Okay. Then I'll give you a serious answer. It's a national political party with an entire country and you can't run around from state to state as a national chair, like a child playing soccer, running after the ball. You have to learn where your position is and do the things that are best for the overall organization and the mission. You can't be, uh, you know, kind of running from spotlight to spotlight because then you're not executing your plan. You're executing the plan of your opponents. It was a special election, right? Was there a bunch of other spotlights you had to run around and <laughs> take part in during that, that election? Or We can't win a Senate race. It's not. It's, I don't think. That is the voice of Alicia Dern, uh, who is no longer in the chair's race, as we mentioned. It's about winning. It's about the the nation's media had descended on the state of Alabama because of Roy Moore. And we we didn't take part in that media whatsoever. We did nothing. It was a ball drop. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll follow up and just ask Joshua, what what would you have done if you were the libertarian chairman? Or would you be flying physically to these locations when you see a special election? Would you just you know stop whatever it is you're doing, whether it's in your, your day job or your, your role as a chairmanship, just to go do that? In, in that specific occasion, I would have called, I would have got a hold of the, the Libertarian Party of Alabama and asked them if I could come there because you want to make sure that you're you're you know you're not jumping in front of the state party. I would have asked them if I could come there and I would have found ways to get us into the media. Absolutely. All right. Do Alicia or Nick want to respond to that at all before we move on? One thing I'll oh. say that I, I do think there was a media opportunity there. I do not know and therefore will not presume to assume that I know what the LNC did. To take advantage of that, because I will tell you one thing, we get media blackouts and to act like that's not true, I think I think is naive. It doesn't matter how big a story is, we will be suppressed. And so uh, our one of our main strategies, we have to have a media strategy that isn't just dependent upon getting invited onto CNN. Um, I'm not sure, although I think it's an interesting idea, but I'm not sure that a press conference would be attended by the mainstream media. And I think Alicia Dern kind of has it right there. Um, <clears throat> I just don't – I mean having followed that really closely, I don't think they would have cared. I think, I, think, I think Joshua probably does have a point that there was some media opportunity there. But I don't know what the National Party or Nick specifically did or did not do besides sort of a tepid push of Ron Bishop. I actually was encouraged by the Alabama stuff because I saw more promotion of Ron Bishop from activists than the party, exactly. yeah. which I thought was really good. I mean, we were p- constantly bombarded, like, why aren't you talking to Ron Bishop? It's like, because I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's well, here's, here's the problem with that race. And I'll do interviews. A lot of, and, and this is where it gets into my concern about the, the political acumen. Um, that race was very specific. Uh, different than most every other race. First of all, it was like one of the first real tests of the resistance against Trump. Yeah. The Democrats put a lot into there because they wanted to show that 
they're going to flip everything back blue and it's just going to be blah, blah, blah. Right. So that ha- that was it. So they put up a candidate that was a literal hero to a large portion of that community. <laughs> right. Right. A lot of people don't talk about this, but Doug Jones was a hero to to that community for actually prosecuting successfully two uh, groups of people. One was um, the church bombing uh, of the of the, of the black yeah, church. I mean, it was yeah. it was um, he was that's why he had like ninety five percent turnout from the black community for him. He was he was always going to probably win that race. Um. And then and then the sexual stuff happened, the the uh, the attacks there and, and the accusations, whatever. So the media is going to a be focusing on how is this beating Trump, and two, what's what's the salaciousness of all this that's going on? They're not going to give up their ad dollars for the viewing that they're getting on those stories to cover. Oh, this libertarian has zero chance of winning. Mm-hmm. They're never going to give them any. <clears throat> I, I did uh, like Alicia's dig at uh, Nick saying our strategy mm-hmm. can't just be uh, being invited on CNN. Right. And that's where I do think both these candidates fall flat is that they don't they don't have a media strategy whatsoever. Well, I think I really think that. So we have two uh, people working with campaign and outreach and stuff. But why don't we have a media person? One person just on the payroll underneath the executive director whose job it is to be the this you know message to the media constantly uh, going on in and trying to trying to get involved in those conversations when they have the the democrat on the right and republican on the left let's get a libertarian in there too let's get some of those going on let's have that and then we can kind of counter that with you know if something like arvin happens maybe that some of that stuff can get filtered through there Right, so we could have a person who could be the spokesperson media-wise for. Yeah, the, let's put Arvin in charge of it. Well, yeah, you know what I'm saying. <clears throat> right, right. It would counter that. So maybe we say if you're on the if you're on the chair, your social media has to kind of follow some rules through the social media person. And, I, I can tell you. I mean, our audience is seven times the national convention, and it's you know a lot of Libertarian Party people. Mm-hmm. I've been waiting for two months to know if I'm getting credentials to New Orleans. <laughs> I've talked to Daniel Hayes, the head of con- the convention. Oh, I'm not in charge of that. Talk to somebody at the national office. Okay, well, mm-hmm. guys, let me make this clear to you. Mm-hmm. I don't – I'm going, but I don't give a fuck about – I'm there to meet people. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I'm not there to cover the party. I don't have and, to. And I like, think that's part of the problem, Make it too. easy on me when you're – like, yeah. I'm not some – I'm, I'm talking to your people. So right. why should I be sitting here having to wait two months down the line? Mm-hmm. Like you, you should be sending me press releases. You should be calling yeah. me. Like the the Adam Kokesh people are five times better at media outreach than the Libertarian National Party. So it, it's it's just mystifying to me that they don't have anybody that does that stuff. Right. And and whose responsibility is it? Is it just people on the on the on the uh, committee who are put into these? You know. I know, I know to, to this stuff, but it's like I know to call Robert Krauss mm-hmm. because I've been around and I have experience. Yeah. But I shouldn't have to be sitting here going, "Oh, I got to make time to call Robert Krauss." No, I sent you an application two months ago. I sent yeah. you my information. That should be acted on immediately you, by whoever. Within there. a week, I should have. Here's your credentials. Thank you for covering us. What information do you need to know? Right. And I think a media person would be perfect for that. I, I really think that that's something that needs to be thought about. Let me be clear, Wes Benedict. <laughs> I'm all you've got. Okay, See, reason may show up. They yeah. barely, they've never showed up until 2016. C-SPAN mm-hmm. covers it, and that's it. I'm it. 
Me and Lions of Liberty. That's what you've got. Treat us nicely. Yeah, Lava Flow probably won't be there, will they? Who? Lava Flow? Uh, I and Roger Paxton will not be making <laughs> That's the That's what convention. I was saying, yeah. <clears throat> All right, before my voice completely craps out, let's um, – let's, uh, this is kind of um, – and. and Another inexperienced. This is another question that I think would be on like the populist libertarians wish list, and then I think Nick gives a good answer of like here's why that doesn't happen. So let's take take a listen. Um, this is sort of an interesting premise here. Uh, William Wells <laughs> at, brings up a question, and that's, that's William Wells. I know. Okay. I had to listen to it a second time. Uh, me too. Like, what really? Well, yeah, because it's a question <laughs> about William Weld. I don't know if this has been a topic around uh, the Libertarian Party or not, but he asks if any of you support a bylaw of a, a time-in-the-party requirement to prevent last-minute presidential ticket additions. Uh, I don't know if this is referring to anyone specific, but I guess uh, maybe that is a concern of people just entering the party at the Smart last ass. minute to make a name for themselves or what have you that you know may, may not, might not have been very active previously. So, uh, we- So having attended the last eight national conventions and watched the bylaws and platform debates carefully and been involved in a lot of them. The delegates of the Libertarian Party typically do not like being told what they can't do. (laughs) So whenever people come up with a bylaw that says you can't nominate someone for president unless they sign some sort of contract or you can't nominate someone from president unless they've been in the party for a particular period of time or you can't do X or you can't do Y, the delegates at convention are very mistrustful of the bylaws proposals that would take away their power. Um, we've, we've seen it when we've tried to do slates. We've seen it when we've tried to do longer LNC terms. They, they are not, they're libertarians. They're naturally skeptical of centralized power. And so anything that smacks of a rule that would take their power away from them is probably dead on arrival and unlikely to get any sort of two-thirds vote. I trust the delegates. You know, we had an argument inside the national office in going into the 2016 convention where there were staff members who thought we shouldn't put up on the website candidates for the presidential nomination who didn't have a lot of support or who were seen as too wacky or crazy or whatever. And I pushed back against that and said, you know, everyone has a voice. Everyone has an opportunity. We're going to have an open field for this nomination. And I trust the delegates in convention to make good choices for the Libertarian Party. Uh, and I'm going to fast forward to the end when he's giving his closing statement, uh, because I thought this was kind of in the same vein. We have an opportunity here. A midterm election is where people switch away from the party in power to the, the other old party in that kind of back and forth pendulum. We have an opportunity to put our candidates out there to present a a coherent alternative that actually means something to the American people. And how we do in the 2018 midterm elections determines who cares to seek our nomination in 2020. There are people around the country who like to talk about, you know, I want Penn Jillette to run for office. Mm-hmm. I want Drew Carey to run for president. I want John Stossel. You know, we all have our favorite people who we'd like to run. But the truth is that most of those people have jobs and they're not interested in doing it. So we don't get to go out chasing our preferred candidate. What we get to do and what we're able to do as libertarians is build the party into an attractive vehicle where more and better people want to come over. 
we work for the reelection of people like Ebke and Finney and Dyer so that people who do come over feel like they'll be supported. You know, we, we support people like Aubrey Dunn, who's running for Senate in New Mexico, who is currently an elected statewide land commissioner. We do the things necessary to grow and to move forward and not to squander the resources and the energy of our membership. Yeah, and I will say that the party seems, uh, when it comes to Laura Ebke in particular, better about supporting some of those folks. We had uh, Ed Coleman was on the Indianapolis City County Council, and he switched in 2013, uh, or he's running in 2013. Uh, City Councilor in Indy running at large for a million people in a state with a straight ticket, so it was tough. The LNC, after a lot of fighting, gave Ed, uh, I think, $50,000. But that was the limit of support. That, there wasn't really any other support that they gave. There wasn't any national press releases or or any kind of volunteers being trucked in. Part of that may have been the candidate. Ed was a fairly grotesque human being, to be honest with you. Uh, at in, least in the level that was running at. at well, just in general, I'm saying like yeah. I, I, he may be better now, but I mean he was very off-putting at the time. Uh, so so they may have people may have been turned off by that, but there wasn't. Uh, you know, I, I guarantee he was representing more people than than Laura Ebke represents. But there is a very big push for some of these big candidates like Larry Sharp, Laura Ebke, and, and some of these other folks. There's one in Montana, the land commissioner in Arizona he just talked about. So I think the party over, overall is doing better in supporting those candidates who switch. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there was one who switched to New Hampshire. I think was fairly nuts that they didn't support, but uh, but yeah. So well, I think they noticed that's the key to getting people to come over from the other parties is that when they go to reelection, they'll get the backing to do it, and they can win. Right. So you have to prove that. I had somebody mention, "Hey, we should get uh, Jeff Flake," because Jeff Flake just put out a, a thing right. talking about um, Donald Trump and how bad he was and everything. And they said we should really get, try and get Jeff Flake over here. Do you think he would? come into the Libertarian Party. And I said, let's look back at how Gary Johnson and Bill Weld were treated when they moved over here. Why would he go through that? Honestly, and Jeff Flake has an even worse yes. record than those two. Everybody I mean, else does. There's no yeah. one really as, that was really as good as, as Johnson and, and Weld on that. Um, I mean, you can, you can debate a couple of people maybe, but for the most part, Anybody coming over is going to have that kind of baggage that they're going to have to deal with. Well, like Flake, somebody. Flake specifically was yeah. was in the was in the Rand Paul Mike Lee. He's one of the mm-hmm. Tea Party Libertarians, yeah. and he he's been very disappointing in a, in a lot of uh, policy ways. Um, <clears throat> so before we go to kind of the the final couple clips here, I do want to play this uh, Nick's. Uh, Nick gets dinged for the disinviting Ron Paul to the convention, even though he had nothing to do with it. That was a convention committee, and Ron Paul was never uninvited. So basically, what I what I what I got from Michael, and I'm going to paraphrase real generally, um, their side of the story is that they wanted Ron Paul to come and speak. Uh, they the convention committee wanted Judge Napolitano because let's be honest. Ron Paul has a history of shoving his thumb in the eye of the Libertarian Party, and they didn't want to put up somebody with his stature and the riskiness of him, like just saying, This is a waste of time. This is a, you know, maybe he would have been more classful than that, but who knows? So, like, they're, so I don't think they're really ever that into Ron Paul speaking. They want to judge Napolitano. 
then so they said, well, can we have Ron Paul speak at your event? Sure. Well, you know, have their own like little caucus room or whatever. And they said, sure. Uh, they want, they were going to have like 300 people. Paul was either going to come there or send a video. Um, <clears throat> and they couldn't get the room. The Mises caucus says that Heiss and, uh, Sam Goldstein flat out said no or disregarded them or they were the reason that this room didn't get booked or that they couldn't get a, a room booked. Uh, I will say this. I don't know. I, I mean, I only know Daniel from the time I talked to him in front of all of you. I know Sam Goldstein really well. I've known him for a decade. I worked for him for two years. I watched the man appoint the most radical and conspiracy theorist-laden person to heads of committees because they worked really hard. You know, And Sam is very much not a, a conspiracy theorist or a radical libertarian. Uh, he's a very fair person, and I just have – I have a hard time – and I just said to Michael like – Maybe your volunteer claims they did the work and is trying to save face, but because I know Sam, like if you ask Sam, he will give you an answer. He's known for being direct. Uh, He's a very fair person. Michael told me about this the other, um, like a week or two ago. Right. As in part of our discussions we were having, and he said that what had happened was is that they had the room ready to go. It needed approval from the the party to so it could be part of the event at that location and they never got back with them to approve it therefore they ended up having to book a hotel across the street the Mises people didn't get back to Daniel no. and Sam or Sam and Daniel didn't he get says, back to Mises he says the, the the party he didn't name names but he said the party didn't approve it with the hotel therefore they couldn't do it that's and, what and, he told me and I just said I either you guys weren't aggressive enough or mm-hmm. Somebody's not telling you the truth because I, I just know Sam. Like Sam, even if Sam hates your guts and you're awful to mm-hmm. Sam, like Sam will be in the inter- do what's fair in the interest of fairness, and he's not going to mm-hmm. deny on a whole caucus. Like that just reeks of conspiracy theory to me. And uh, I don't know what the true story is, but I, I just I, I can vouch for. I'm here to vouch for Sam Goldstein, uh, and I can tell you that Sam, um, if you were to call Sam on the phone and say I. I want this room. Mm-hmm. Sam gave a room to Cynthia McKinney. And I said, Sam, what the f- are you doing? Cynthia McKinney is a nut job. He said, they wanted a room. Cynthia McKinney paid for the room. They're getting the room. I know she's nuts, but that's what they wanted. That's what Adam Kokesh wanted. So we gave it to him. Like, so the whole argument just doesn't hold water. Yeah. And so, so there's something there that the Mises caucus had to have dropped the ball. I, I mean, I don't know if Sam, I just know Sam, if you had approached Sam and done it the right way, then it would have gotten done. I don't know about Daniel, but uh, he seems, never mind, I still <laughs> need my credentials. Um, so, but on the Ron Paul stuff, uh, here is Nick Sarwark on Ron Paul. All right, I don't think there's anything terribly controversial there, so we can probably move on if anyone wants to butt in. Listen to Mark just hoping for fireworks, so he can promote, he's, such a, he's such a little fireworks hound. And uh, while I tee up the next question, feel free to. Uh, but otherwise, I'm going to move on to – let's uh, kind of change directions a little bit. This question is from Joey Meyer, and he asked an interesting question. He wants to know what each of you think of the Ron Paul movement of 2008-2012. Now, that, that might, might seem like a toss-up for libertarians, um, but the second part of that question is and whether it brought people to the Libertarian Party. Because as we all know, Ron Paul always ran as a Republican. Uh, many people were inspired by him. But what effect did that have when it comes to the party itself? Uh, this to me feels like a litmus test. Like this is a litmus test question. It's, yeah, it's a litmus test for 
that group who are wanting to elevate it's it's the revol the Paul Revol Rand Paul yeah, Revolution. Yeah, it's the it's the right the Ron Paul Revolution. Yeah. Uh, Nick, we'll let you start. So the Ron Paul movement of oh eight and twelve was something I watched very carefully. Um, I was very sympathetic to Ron Paul having been our our nineteen eighty eight nominee and probably the most libertarian member of Congress ever. It did bring a lot of people to the Libertarian Party. I run into libertarians on a daily basis who said that they ended up in the Libertarian Party because they got excited about Ron Paul and they realized that the Republican Party that he was a member of did not actually reflect the views that he had, that he was constantly an outsider in his own party. And if they wanted to make change, they had to move to a party that actually allowed them to find their voice. You know, one of the saddest things to watch in 08 and 2012 was state parties and national conventions silencing the democratically elected voice of these Ron Paul delegates by shenanigans and, and you know, backroom deals. So there's no doubt that Ron Paul has brought lots of people to the Libertarian Party. The question is, where do we go from there? Ron Paul is not seeking political office again. He has run for president in 88 as a libertarian and in 08 and 2012 as a Republican. Since 1988, he has not endorsed a libertarian candidate other than himself. He has endorsed over 30 Republican candidates in that period of time. So it's not that I would in any way deny the idea that people come in through the Ron Paul movement and that's their gateway drug to the Libertarian Party, but there's a question of where does that movement go? Where do they go other than the Libertarian Party? There are no Libertarian Republicans standing up, and at this point, the Republican Party is doing everything they can to cut the knees out from any Republicans that show Libertarian tendencies, and it leads to weird stuff like, you know, Rand Paul supporting Mike Pompeo. I mean, bad stuff happens when you join the Republican Party. Yeah, so I I mean, as chair of the Libertarian Party, I expect Nick to say that. Um, but there has never been a more uh, – I don't think there's been a stronger Libertarian movement within the Republican Party in the 20 years I've paid attention to politics. I think you've got Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, uh, and a whole new generation. I think the next generation of Republicans, all, the, all my peers – who work in the Republican Party are very libertarian. Like the social conservative stuff is is not what it once was, especially not in the millennial generation. What it really comes down to is is foreign policy. That is really where the like when we when we get to a point where there's a war, that's when you'll start seeing who the real libertarians are or not. Well, like, it used and it kind of used to be immigration, but that's <laughs> really melding on both yeah. sides. Well, of that. I, I think you know. <laughs> Immigration is something that isn't. It may or may not get solved, but "quote unquote" solved. Like it's it's hard to stop human migration when it comes to freedom and personal economics. But war is something that you can stop. We stopped it in Libya. We stopped it in Syria. We stopped it. I mean, people were so mobilized against new wars under Barack Obama. Now, did he send in drones? Did he did he engage militarily in those places? Yes, but he didn't escalate. And trust me, there was pressure too. 
So, so I think war is just it's just one place that we can't compromise. You cannot you cannot compromise on it because war is the great destroyer. It, it eliminates every facet of freedom. Well, and it creates more problems than it ever really solves. Yeah. for the most part. And there are those occasional ones that are that are righteous and you need to go down and but there's been maybe two or three of those that I know of in the history of the United States at the most. And you can you can argue a lot of those. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So we'll end with uh Mark asking them about their weaknesses. Uh here are the things that I hear that are negative about you. Answer these questions. And he started with Nick on Tom Woods. Tom Woods uh is Somebody that I listen to all the time. I love Tom Woods. I think he is a great communicator. I think he is somebody that has been a great benefit to the Libertarian Party. And Nick weirdly tweeted out something kind of like linking Tom Woods and the Mises Institute to like white supremacy and saying the Libertarian Party has no room for white supremacy, which I I agree. Uh, but Tom Woods is not a white supremacist. <laughs> he he may be a states' rights person, but he's certainly not, in my view, in any way, shape, or form, a racist. Uh, and I think it was just a very weird thing uh, to, to kind of imply. Um, well, we came from the a Jeff Dees um, speech, the, the head of the Mises yeah. Institute. At the very end of it, he used a, a very um, dog whistle line from. Blood and soil, yeah, blood yeah, soil which line. is something that was used in Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany. So I think that's where the concern was, is that we're seeing a lot of these um, trying to infiltrate their way in um, to the party. And it, it, it was it, right after Charlotte, and Nick was trying to make a public point. We don't tolerate this in the party. This is not who we are. But I think he might have done it in a way that was – Typical Nick fashion where he's trying to be kind of cutesy about snarky. it. Snarky. Snarky about it. And got the wrong person because Tom Woods just has so many fans. And most of the people, I think I think if you go back and look, it's that event that actually started the Mises Caucus. And the whole point is to try and push him out. So that that has created all of this just because of that one event. And to me, it's such a weird event because, okay, so he made the statement, Tom – Immediately fired back with vulgarities and very upset, which you can understand. He, he would be upset about that. But since then, Nick has reached out to try and clear the air, and Tom refuses to even talk to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and he basically said, in, you know, uh, Woods keeps bringing it up. I don't keep bringing it up. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, and I think Woods is being a little Trumpian on it. Uh, but but yeah. the, And to be fair, it does help sell of course. this podcast. Yeah. Picking a fight with an unpopular opponent is is a great way. Punching down. Yeah, I do it with Melissa Donahue all the time. Like, that's the whole point. People love the drama of it, and and she's a safe person to punch down on. You know, like, it's... And she's a person who will never... I will never... It's not like Nick and Tom who are rational human beings. Like, it's different <laughs> with Melissa. She's a crazy person. But, yeah. <clears throat> and I'm moderately crazy. But... But yeah, I, I really took exception with it. Like, why would you pick a fight with Tom Woods, the biggest libertarian podcaster? Like, why would you go on my Facebook page when I criticize you about it and then start punching me in the face using a very personal incident about my former co-host leaving and, and like pouring salt in that wound? Like, okay, I thought we were friends. That's very clearly not a friendship move. Like, being critical of your public stance 
and the way that you publicly behaved is very different than what you just did. You know, and Nick and I have not talked since. Uh, he actually sent me like a weird cryptic, like he he was going to uh, a piece of advice. I think is what he he uh, put in my message box, and then he said, you know, never mind. <laughs> so I don't know what he was going to refer to. Uh, but I have not talked to Nick since that, um, and he was somebody that I would I would communicate with back and forth sometimes. Um, you know, I, I just I think it's a very weird move for the head of the Libertarian Party to pick a fight with uh, somebody who could do great damage and did. But I think bringing the Mises Caucus in is a net benefit. So, uh, so here is uh, Nick on the Tom Woods affair. Uh, Nick, you know, many have been critical of, I guess, what you might call some of your spats with other names in the Libertarian movement. Uh, you got into it a bit with Tom Woods on Twitter last year, uh, and I guess, uh, I guess the question that I hear a lot is, how would you respond to people who are, who are say, fans of Tom Woods, uh, fans of the Mises Institute? Is the Libertarian Party under your leadership a welcome place for them? Absolutely. The Libertarian Party, under my leadership, is a welcome place for anybody who wants a world set free in their lifetime. If you want to be involved in politics as a libertarian, there is one and only one vehicle for you, and it's the Libertarian Party. Every think tank, be it Mises or Cato or anyone else, every nonprofit, none of them get to put candidates up on the stage. None of them get their results measured in vote totals. None of them gets to move public policy in the way that libertarian candidates are able to do. So the Libertarian Party is absolutely open to anyone that agrees that they want to get a world set free in their lifetime. You know, one of the things that I think is dangerous for a party is to try and somehow cater to people who do not vote or who are not interested in electoral politics. You know, as I mentioned before, Ron Paul hasn't supported a single libertarian candidate since himself in 1988. To my knowledge, Tom Woods has never supported a libertarian candidate ever in his life. So if we want to make a political party more attractive to people who, for whatever reason, whether it's good or bad or correct philosophically, just don't do politics or aren't interested in doing politics— I think that that moves us away from our core mission. You know, I think Tom Woods' fans vastly overestimate how much I care about Tom Woods because I haven't mentioned him since whatever spat you're referring to uh, over a year ago, I think, now. Whereas he seems to mention me on a regular basis because it must burn or something. Um, So I don't want to be the arbiter of who can be a libertarian in the libertarian party. I believe in a big tent. And what I get concerned about is I see some of my opponents who do seem to want to be an arbiter of who can be a libertarian, who do want to say so-and-so is not libertarian enough, or so-and-so's views are so outside of our party that we can't let them in the door, or so-and-so said nice things about Hillary Clinton. And so he can't be, you know, considered by the delegates as a potential candidate. That kind of exclusionary stuff, I think, is much more damaging to a political party when you're trying to exclude people who are trying to be involved in politics. And I do think that his point about exclusionary politics is a fairly good point, especially when you're running to be a functionary. Right. When you say you're 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 running to unify the party and then you start 
start limit, limiting who can be in the party, it kind of doesn't really unify. But he really did like work some magic there where he said and did something divisive. <laughs> and then he's like, I just don't want to be divisive. It's like, okay. Well, well that's Nick, the thing. Is, right. I don't want to say who can and can't be in the party, but we don't allow racists in the party, <laughs> well, which we I think we agree with that, that there are at, at the extremes. There are oh, some there's people def- we don't, you know. There's definitely some, an- there's some anti-Semitism in the Libertarian Party. In there's the definitely some yeah. anti-Semitism. I mean, there's some racism, yeah, unfortunately, that I would like to get chucked out somehow, but. Like you, you just, do? you watch the stuff around Israel's 70th anniversary and all the stuff mm-hmm. that happened around that. And you're just like, you're not even trying to like reason what happened here or deal with the facts. You're just being anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's probably part of the, uh, Nick is part of the tribe. I mean, so mm-hmm. that probably plays into it. Some, not, not Tom Woods, not Joshua, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, but I do think that those elements do exist, and I don't think I, I do think he was trying to distance himself, but he was being exclusionary. So don't give mm-hmm. us the story that you weren't being exclusionary, yeah. even though your point is right. Your behavior didn't match your words. Well, I think I think where he's coming, where he's trying to say is that we shouldn't be exclusionary for the most part. Right there, there have to be some has to be some discretion. But just like the the examples he gave were very good ones where just because somebody was nice to Hillary Clinton, do you want to just say he's not a libertarian and kick him out? Or do you want to say, you know, there's there's a, a lot of people are concerned with the socialist movement inside of the party where there's like a handful of social socialist libertarians. They're, don't let them in the part. Don't let them in power. Don't let them have anything to do on the, the platform. But. Use them if you want to. I mean, the, the they're harder, willing to work hard. Let them work hard. The harder you fight against somebody, the yeah. more, you know, it's like the kneeling in the NFL. By banning that, all they're going to do is make that stronger. You know, like anytime you suppress free speech. Yeah, the more you tell Arvin to stop doing he's it, he's going to do he more. does it. Yeah. I mean, that's so, <clears throat> you know, if you're chair of the National Party, you need to be uh, open to everybody. And I do think that Josh Joshua represents – I think he's well-meaning, but I think he represents the protest vote against the current power. Mm-hmm. And I, I think – which is hilarious because that's always been Nick. Nick has always right. been kind of leading that independent <laughs> anti-power. Uh, well, it's, but, it's – I've seen hashtags just anybody but Nick. You know, right. Everybody – you know, they go and it's all – and if you ask him why, it all goes back to that Tom Woods incident. Tom Woods thing. Because they don't want the party – playing identity politics which then starts making me wonder how many of them are upset that he attacked tom woods and how many of them are upset that they he was telling them that they shouldn't be in the party yeah which there's some of that they have a right to be upset about i mean but there's also a lot of people on facebook and twitter and on these social networks who've never done a damn thing in the libertarian party mm-hmm. who are upset about that a lot. And, that, and that's kind of his point. It's like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not wasting my time on people who don't participate in the right. Libertarian Party. They're in the Libertarian movement. They're not part of the mm-hmm. party. So, so I don't know. I, I I think he was he was wrong in doing it. Uh, he was wrong in provoking that fight. Mm-hmm. I I feel his answer there lacked uh, any real explanation. I yeah. I think he made a good point, but it didn't resolve. He didn't absolve him of his former sin. But uh, right. and, and my my take on it was always. I think he meant well. I think he executed poorly. Yeah. And I don't think he's been able to fix the bad perception that that left and it's probably going to cost him. Trying to be Donald Trump on Twitter doesn't work. I mean, he can get away. He's not getting away with it. If Donald Trump mm-hmm. shut his Twitter down, he'd be at 50% of, you know, he'd be 
massively. I mean, he shoots himself in the foot. I do yeah. it too. It's like the more I open my mouth well, on Facebook and Twitter, the less when, people like me. When Nick is taking shots at <clears throat> Republicans and Democrats, we all cheer and love. Yes. Him. When he starts with, you know, people who are doing things that he doesn't agree with inside the party, that's when people start to get upset because yep. he's very good at it. So a lot of people will take very strong umbrage to it, right? So his, his his line about your parties, you know, your tears are delicious and your parties will die. It's wonderful. Yeah. Everybody loves it. T-shirts are made, go. But then he turns that over here and everybody's like, whoa, you it's, can't do It's that. just, it was unnecessary. Yeah. It was unnecessary to pick a fight with me. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so you know, in my mind, uh, let's... I, I've said Joshua has a lot of an experience. He shows some of that. He answers that question. All right. We're going to move on to uh, – I'm going to go over to Joshua now for this one. And I, I think by far the biggest criticism I've seen of you out there um, you know, from your fellow opponents as well as other people are is basically just your lack of experience both um, when it comes to the dealing with the National Party and dealing in sort of a, an administrative role at, that, that the level that the, the chairman takes. Now, you're going into this role with, with this lack of experience. And a lot of people have even said that you're basically naive about your ability to implement a lot of these big visions that you've talked about and a lot of the plans that you have. And obviously you're very enthusiastic about that, but not everybody out there seems to think that you actually can execute everything that you want and that you have the ability to serve as that sort of arbiter um, as the the chair um, sort of needs to do. So what would you say to people that just don't think that – think that either A, you're not experienced or ready enough or that you're naive thinking that you can sort of execute this? vision that you have yeah absolutely and so i have made it no secret that i am less experienced than than nick sarwark i i know that and i it's something that i i carry around with me but it's it's only created this need for me to learn faster and and meet the delegates to find out what they want you know like i said earlier I, you know i leave for ohio here at midnight and uh will be my 16th state that i've been to in the last 18 weeks you know i've shaken over a thousand hands of the hardest working people in this party our ground level activists i've heard what they want what they want to see what they want national to do so i have no fear um, taking taking the reins and and knowing that these are the things that the delegates are going to want to see, these are the things that the membership is going to want to see, and these are the things that they believe are going to make us a more successful party and and push us into a direction to have a world set free in our lifetime, like Nick says. I you know and so you know experience be damned. I, I I'm not worried. You know I've knocked down a lot of goals, a lot of things. People said that they didn't think I could do. You know they they said I wouldn't be able to chair a big meeting. I went into the Oklahoma State Convention and I chaired their their convention with 15 minutes notice. You know, I'm I'm not worried because I understand that my whole campaign has been run listening to the people that are the most important in this party. And, and I know that I can get these things done with their help. Very populist message. True. But you've been a, you you ran a political organization before. I've been a manager before. How does that answer sound to you as if you're going to come in and, and do that job? Are you going to do it based off of what the people who are going to be in overseeing tell you they want it run, how they want it run? I get um, he's going to manage it for his people. Mm -hmm. I I really feel like there's a strain in Joshua that it's very Trumpian and he's tapping into that where he is he is going to win for his people. He's representing all the people, but he's really kind of a partisan fighter Um, that that's just in listening to this. That's how he strikes me. Uh, and I, I don't think that he 
he really understands the job, and I don't hear in that answer a willingness to learn. It's, I'm going to do what I want. I've set the goals out. These goals are based off what people want. You're going to do what I want. And uh, we're going to make this happen. So so I think he's going to – and any time the party has elected a chair like that, i.e. Mark Hinkle, Jeff Neal, they run into a buzzsaw. Because they don't have the power to do the things that they said they're going to do. Because you have to walk in and build consensus. Well, and the fact that the chair doesn't do some of that stuff. The executive director does some of it. Yep. Or the committees do it. Yeah. Committees do it. But the other thing that worries me about all of this is that we talk about how Joshua is kind of the the golden child of the Mises Caucus and, and what goes on there. But Michael's also stated that he is trying to replace every single member on the committee. With his people, with the exception of Carol Ann, I think Carol Ann, which may or may Carolina, not happen. I'm sorry, um, but you know that's maybe that's thinking if we get our people in there and then we get Josh in there, then he can run the thing the way he wants to, and he's going to get automatic consensus from the people who are getting put in. <laughs> it's not how it's going to work. I know. So uh, I, I think he's very well-meaning, and I think that he is very passionate. And I, do I think he'd be a disastrous chair? Absolutely not. Um, well, it's the least uh, important position in the, in the Yeah, no. So I, And I think he's got a lot of good people supporting him. So, so, so but he's definitely – like in terms of the choices that libertarian delegates have in New Orleans – it's a better choice than they've had in in many past elections. So, you know, I, I've been hard hard on both of them tonight, but I think they're ultimately, I think, uh, just the the work ethic that Joshua has put into it, I think, has been very. Well, I, I said the same thing about Michael. The, the fact that he started that caucus nine months ago, and it is what it is now. I mean, that shows that he yeah. can. I want to see that effort put into candidates getting people elected. That really means something, right? And so this is why I always say, like, respect that hard work. Like, mm-hmm. instead of picking on Nick or Joshua or Michael or, you know, whoever runs the, the Pragmatic Caucus or Karen who runs, in my mind, runs the... the uh, Radical. Yes. <clears throat> like, these people put a lot of time and hard work mm-hmm. into something that they're very passionate about. And mm-hmm. you probably have way more in common than you wish, than you think. Yeah. So thank them for their efforts. And one of them is going to lose, and that's not easy. And a kind word will go a long way. So mm-hmm. so I think you you've gotta you gotta treat this with respect and treat these uh people as if they're humans. Everybody who's running, everybody who's involved in this stuff, in my opinion, all have their heart in the right place. I may disagree with their methods, I may disagree with their goals. But I don't think anybody's maliciously trying to do anything, like to hurt the party, to to make us look bad. They're all doing what they think is the right thing to do, and you can't fault somebody for doing that. So, you know, you have to remember that when you're having these conversations and these little internet fights and these factionalizations, and and that's where I get into that back to that thing where we really should be we're. We're ninety five percent agree on all of this stuff. We, yeah. If you sit down, I've had conversations where we we on Facebook where we get into arguments, and it's like we're, we're night and day arguing about stuff. By the end of it, it's like you know we kind of agree on everything here. We just came at it a different way, or messaging was different. We really agreed. So 
why are we fighting? Why are we fighting over five to ten percent difference in our thought processes or our goals or or where we want the party to go in the end, like the anarchists and the minarchists in the class? We got I got because people saying get rid of those people, and it's like why get us? Let's all, let's all get there, and then when that makes a difference in 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 our society, then we can have our big argument and fight and split. No, I mean, else. why can't you just fight and argue and and enjoy each other as people mm-hmm. and have differing opinions? Yeah, why is that to be? Per- why you have to personally? It's part of politics, and it's something I've seen in politics over the past um, couple of decades. It used to be different. You know, Ronald Reagan would go to lunch with Tip O'Neill. They hated each other on a political basis, right? But they would go and and hang out with each other at lunch because they were still friends. Uh, there's pictures of, of William Weld having a drink with Kerry when they were running against each other. You know, they were in a bar talking and having a good time. You can still be friendly with people and respect each other. You don't have to tear them down. You don't have right. to make them the enemy or dehumanize them in order to bring yourself to that righteous feeling of we're fighting the good fight and they're the horrible enemy. And you don't have to do that. You can just simply disagree with people. Yeah. And I would encourage everyone moving into the convention to to treat it that way and to treat everybody with respect. Uh, personally, I think that Josh has a bright future in the party, but I don't think he's ready to be chair. Agree 100%. Uh, I think that Nick has, in the 10 years I've been around, been the best chair in terms of running the office and in in terms of some of his media work. But I think that he's had some significant leadership drops, and uh, hopefully he's learned from that. And I think people need to ask, have you learned from this? What are you going to yeah. do differently? And that's the concern, too, is will he be effective as an LNC chair even because of this stuff is still going to linger behind? He yeah. can't, a, a new person would refresh that position, and we wouldn't have that. So people, that's the arguments and but decisions when, to make. So. Going into 2010, mm-hmm. it was Rutherford versus uh, Mark Hinkle. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Neal walked out the chair. I mean, so it's so you never know who's going to win. Well, and, gonna and the other out. thing you have to remember, actually, it was Vegas. That was Vegas. In something, something that everybody should remember while they're going down, if they're going down to vote as a delegate, that N O T A is still an option. It always will be an option, and it always should be considered. If you don't think either one of these two people should be the chair, don't vote for them. Vote for somebody. Don't vote for none of the above, and we'll put somebody else in there. Usually in a convention situation, everybody's second choice wins. Yep. Um, And I think Nick is probably everybody's second choice. (laughs) So, all right. uh, My vocal cords are on fire. I hope you like this episode because I hope I can speak for the next week. Uh, It hurts. (laughs) So let's go ahead and wrap up. Final thoughts? Um, Final thoughts about this is that I agree with you that I think that um, Joshua's probably a little inexperienced and should work in the – he's got a great future. I'm – I think he's, there's some temperament issues that I would like to see him more addressed, and I think he has been uh, some experience issues that he's going to overcome, and he's going to be great for this party. I just don't know if he's ready yet. Nick um, has been – I think he's done a great job as chair. There's things that we don't know about uh, a lot that don't get a lot of press, like with the uh, the situation in the Oregon affiliate, affiliate – Oregon affiliate uh, where they emailed uh, an answer to the party. was basically they voted to, to email a finger – to the party. Uh, there's a whole story behind it I haven't got yet. I'm trying to find out, but it was hinted at. Oh, dude, the Oregon party's been a mess for five so, years. Yeah. But, but apparently Nick has been heroic in keeping that going and keeping them in the party. That, so, but that doesn't get any press. Nobody knows about it because of, of that. But, so essentially what happened in Oregon a few years ago is uh, there was a leadership split. 
mm-hmm. both declared that they were the official, official Lib- party. Libertarian Party and the LNC. It's been a battle as to who who to recognize as the official party, mm-hmm. and it's just it's like I can't believe it's still going on. Like how, how I read a little bit like about there's they went to a judge and the judge told them to get this stuff out of my court because this is stupid. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's so. I think that Nick has done a great job. I think he has stumbled. Or I think everybody's human. I think his heart was in the right place. He just screwed up. Um, but that doesn't forgive him or exonerate him for that. If you don't think he should be chair for that, don't vote for him. Make him answer for it. Yeah, make him answer for it. When you get there as a delegate, go talk to him. That's why I've always said to somebody, because I've always been able to approach Nick on Messenger or, or email or yeah, talk to him. Nick, Nick, Nick and Joshua, you. if you listen to this and you have mm-hmm. questions for either of them, send them a message. Yeah, they both talk on Messenger. I can, I've can i talked to both of them uh, several times. My discussions with Josh are usually a little bit more heated, uh, just because he's usually trying to defend Michael when I'm talking to Michael, and then he comes in and gets in there like a little thing. I don't know. It's like... You got a lot to worry about. Well, don't worry about this. You know yeah. that's that's where I kind of my temperament issues come in. Um, just let some of that stuff go. Um, but yeah, that's always always remember that NOTA is part is an option. Don't let that go away. So um, other than that, I'm I'm looking forward. I'm going to be going down there. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody else down there. And um, that's uh, pretty much it. I'll be down there. We'll and, have to do a get together. Thanks to Brandon Luke. Craig DaCosta, Jason Doolittle, and Christy Avery for being our $100 a month subscribers. And uh, missed you guys. Glad to be back. I'm well rested. Uh, it doesn't sound like it, uh, but I am, I'm, I'm ready to get back to the grind. So uh, we will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Libertarians. I'm amazed you made it to the very end, and I appreciate that. And that means that you were a true fan of We Are Libertarians, and any true fan of We Are Libertarians should listen to our other podcasts. We have a whole network of shows. We have The Chris Spangle Show, where I talk about many of my varied interests that aren't political, a lot of podcasting talk, if you're interested in getting involved in podcasting. The Brian Nichols Show. Brian talks to a lot of different folks from the left, the right, the center, libertarian movement. If you love We Are Libertarians, you will love The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty. The Boss Hog has basically created a media empire in his small town and has taken over along with his co-host Dakota Davis. I think it's really interesting to see how they've built a media network, and I encourage you to do the same. Upward Political Training, it's a podcast where I've put a lot of training for libertarians on how to spread the message. The cost, this is a podcast where we break down the human costs of government policy, so be sure to check that out. Raw Audio Politics, where basically I take unedited speeches and interviews and stuff that I want to listen to, and I put it in a podcast feed for you. Miranda's World, Miranda is one of the craziest human beings in a good way that I've ever met. She's so entertaining and so much fun, and I think you will love that. And who could not listen to Tad Talk? Tad Western brings you the rootness, tootness, good time this side of the Mississippi. So be sure to check that out. He's one of the funniest human beings that I know. And if you are chubby and you need to get in shape, then you can't outrun the fork with Brett Bittner, where he talks about keto. Yes, I gave Brett Bittner a show. And you can check out a bunch of other podcasts at libertarianpodcasts.com. I have put together all of my favorite libertarian podcasts up there at libertarianpodcast.com, including our friends Lions of Liberty, The Lava Flow, The Johnny Rocket Launchpad, 
the Scott Horton Show is one that I definitely think you should be listening to. So go check that out. Lots of great libertarian podcasts out there. You may not know where to start. Start there. And we've also got a comprehensive list of all the libertarian podcasts I can find. Thank you for listening. And if you love We Are Libertarians, please check out all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at wearelibertarians.com.